The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Bootleg Football Podcast. I am your host, Brett Coleman, here with my wonderful co-host, EJ Snyder. And EJ, before we start tonight, uh, I just want to let you know the prophecy has been fulfilled and the prophet was correct. Sun's in four, baby. Sun's in four. Yeah, we all saw the prophet in the stands, and man, you don't want to cross the prophet. Hey. Because the prophet's going to pull your jersey over your head and make good prophet time. Prophet will fuck so. you up. Or yeah, uh, prof- in his words, fuck your boy up. Excuse me. I, to quote sure. to quote him directly, the Holy Scripture. Yeah, he, he fulfilled a prophecy in the stance. But no, the Suns are uh, sons are fun. And everybody's like, wait, this isn't a basketball podcast. Well, no, but we can still talk about fun sports stuff. <laughs> yeah, there's there's things other than football going on for one month out of the year. We're, we're in June. It's it's the summer doldrums. The draft is long gone. Training camp doesn't start till next year. Like, this is the time where, you know, you're watching racing, you're watching basketball, you're getting as much college softball in as you possibly can. Uh, by the way, family tradition, well, it was a few weeks ago, um, Memorial Day weekend, me and my dad always used to call it the golden weekend because you're getting college baseball, lacrosse, softball, basketball, golf, uh, indie fight, like all the same weekend. Like other than football not being there, it is the best sports weekend of the year. And it was uh, it was fantastic this year again. But anywho, we, we got a lot of football to talk about. Why don't we get into it? Uh, we're talking NFC South this week. A uh, lot of really, really fascinating teams to go over all the way from the bottom to the top. Really, there there isn't there isn't really a bottom with this division, I would say. Like, there's no, it's kind of like the AFC West. There's no bad teams, but they're all uh, incredibly fascinating. Kind of what's your take overall with this division before we get into uh, the Falcons as our first team? Well, certainly Tom Brady shifted the balance for this division coming in last year, picking Tampa Bay, sort of hand selecting Tampa Bay as the team that he wanted to see if he could take to the Super Bowl, and he did. That's incredibly rare very difficult thing to do and really turn the balance of power in the division towards Tampa Bay. And I don't think it's moved. We'll talk about that throughout, but some coaching changes, uh, the second year of Matt rule in Carolina. So we get to see more of his program and it's an interestingly 
balanced division and the other major change. So we had a quarterback come in and change the balance of power. And now we have a quarterback going out. Drew Brees retiring. And and you and I were talking about this before the show is that we've been able to count on Drew Brees as the Saints starter for a good long time. And that meant mm, you're really not going to lose more than eight games in a 16 game season. Like Drew will will you to 500 and probably better. Now there's a huge question mark there. So this whole like, okay, Bucks, Saints, is it really, is it Bucks and Saints or is, you know, um, you know, team with a brand new head coach uh, in Atlanta going to rise up or is Matt Rule's sort of plan really going to take hold couple of good drafts coming together and are they going to rise up and, and be challenging the Bucks for the division lead? So the balance is really interesting, a shift of balance over the last couple of years from the sort of traditional storylines in the division. And that makes it interesting all by itself. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of the divisions that kind of doesn't matter which one of them's on TV. I'm going to I'm going to find time to watch just because I think it's going to go down really all the way to week. What is it? 18 week season now. Right. So it'll be week 18 when when all the, the craziness happens in the end. I don't think we're really going to know. um who's going in the playoffs from this division till right to the very end. Like we can guess Tampa is going to be there as division winner, but literally all three of the other teams can, can make a wild card. There's a, there's an, a position that you could argue for all of them making a wild card. So can't wait to watch it. Uh, why don't we start off with uh, the Falcons? By the way, uh, some of you saw me pouring this. I, I, I do want to give the fans what they want and show what I am drinking tonight. I have, the Angels Envy Rye got rave reviews. I haven't had it yet, but uh, it's Angels Envy, so it's probably good. But it's also finished in Caribbean rum casks. And I'm a massive fan of rum cask finishes, so I'm I'm really excited about it. What do you got tonight? That's really solid. I've got a local brewery from up in Leavenworth, Washington, uh, which is right in the mountains between western and eastern Washington. Uh, this is Icicle Brewing's uh, Kickstand Pale Ale. Uh, another good summer offering, 4.8 by volume for, for alcohol. It's got a little bit of a bite to it. Sometimes pails are a little bit sweeter. Um, this has a little bit more of a hoppy kick to it, um, but it's my first time, not my first time drinking stuff from Icicle, but uh, my first time trying the pail. Uh, so I bought one of them when I was out getting other stuff at the uh, local beer store and they had a bunch of singles and I was like, hey, I like Leavenworth. Uh, I'll try that. So uh, I will report back after the podcast but another cool summer beer offering and it's got a bike on it so you know it's it's quick to my heart you're you've got a great face after tasting that holy fuck (laughs) okay that's a great review right off no no that's all holy fuck it's a two-word review you're really you're really surprised that something from angels envy that they matured in rum casks is good this like, might be the best rye I've ever had. Like, uh, ever. Well, that's a thing. That's a whole different thing. Because <laughs> like, I know that like you've had I, a rye or two. Maybe it's cheating because it's a rum cask finish and, like, it's, like, purist how, might, but... How is that Oh, my cheating? God. How is that cheating? I mean, it's, it's not, not but... It's but, oh, my God. If if you're if you're listening at home and you can ever get your hands on an Angel's Envy rye, I don't care what it costs. Go get it. That is phenomenal. <laughs> oh, we my like God. like phenomenal. Phenomenal. Uh, now, what may or may not be phenomenal, uh, depending on what happens in the next five years, is the Falcons' off-season choices. I guess we'll kind of group them all together. 
lot of division in the Falcons fan base right now. There's arguments for or against all of the moves they did, really, but uh, we'll kind of get into them one by one. First things first, though, we're going to do our staff review. It's a brand new regime coming in this year. You got Terry Fontenot, year one at general manager, Arthur Smith coming over, also in year one at head coach, and then you got Dean Pease coming out of retirement to take over at defensive coordinator, and Dave Ragone coming over from Chicago to be the offensive coordinator. He was the passing game coordinator last year and a quarterback's coach for four years before that, if I remember correctly. And I, I know, you know, it's probably easy to see him as a scapegoat for the lack of development for Mitchell Trubisky, but I feel like a lot more than just quarterback coach goes into that. So, I mean, that's my way of being optimistic and saying, let's see. I mean, there are some quarterbacks that it doesn't really matter who's coaching them. They're just not very good. And there's some quarterbacks where, uh, you know, there's some things that you can iron out and the quarterback coach makes a lot of bit of difference. And there's some quarterbacks that are already so great and it doesn't matter. Like they don't really need a quarterback coach to teach them how to play. Like nobody's going to look at Aaron Rodgers quarterback coach and say, that's the reason he's good. So it kind of depends on the team. It depends on the situation for how much a quarterback's coach really has on the impact of, of how the quarterback plays from week to week for a lot of teams. QB coaches are really more involved with like game planning, you know, finding tells in the defense, you know, they might like most of these guys have throwing coaches, so they don't really tinker too much with mechanics. It's more so like helping them just kind of prepare from week to week. So I'm not entirely sure if I could really throw all the Mitch stuff entirely on Dave Ragone. It's it's an easy scapegoat to make, but again, unless we know exactly what he was doing within the organization, it's hard to really put the blame on him or Nagy or just Mitch himself. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of leave it there at that. But what's your overall opinion on uh, the new GM and new coaching staff going into year one in Atlanta? Yeah, new GM, I I feel like it's like a draft class thing you have to wait a couple of years you can you can look at what he did in the draft this year you can look at what he did in free agency we'll look at both of those things tough to tell whether or not those decisions overall uh, are great or terrible i'm gonna have to give that a little bit so so terry gets a bit of a pass arthur smith uh we'll see but i really liked arthur smith as a head coaching candidate in this last round of head coaching hires uh thought he had a chance to go a couple of places and i like the fit with atlanta uh he goes into a place with an established quarterback which is always a good start for a new head coach he's got a bunch of offensive talent there that i think he can use differently and the the things that he did with the titans i think translate pretty well so i'm excited about arthur smith i really want to see how it all gels and how quickly it gels you and i were talking uh, about the fact that this could be very Matt LaFleur-esque, right? I predicted a bit of a slower start for Matt LaFleur, and sure enough, he had an established veteran quarterback, and they came out of the gate hot and ran straight to the division title that year, uh, surprising everybody because they'd had a lot of changes on defense. It was a brand-new head coach. Everybody was saying, oh, it's going to take a while to gel. And we could see something similar. If if Atlanta gels quickly, they have talent. This is not a bottom-feeding talent roster, right? They have talent on the offensive side of the ball. They've got some defensive playmakers as well. They could use a few more. But if Arthur Smith and Matty Ice get on the same page really quickly, Atlanta could be good fast. So that'll be fascinating to watch. Dean Pease, 
man, Dean Pease is kind of the the Brett Favre of defensive coordinators, right? I'm going <laughs> to retire. I'm not going to do this anymore. And everybody wishes him well. And then somebody says, oh, come back for a year and, and be my defensive consultant. And he does. And then he, oh, I'm going to retire. I'm walking away. I'm not doing it. And then Arthur Smith goes to Atlanta and says, I'll make you defensive coordinator. And Dean Pease is like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. Um, you know, a storied coaching history in the NFL with Dean Pease. Um, so, Again, we'll see how he meshes with those defensive pieces. And the Dave Ragone thing, I think he nailed it. We don't really know what he did in Chicago. Nagy was very hands-on with the offense. We know he was the play caller. We know he was very involved with Mitch personally. Um, we don't really know what Dave's responsibility was or authority was within that system. And he, he changed last year from being a quarterback's coach to being a sort of more offensive overseer. Again, what does that really mean? Is it preparation? Is it game planning? Is it scripting? We don't know. Overall, wasn't really thrilled with the offense in pretty much any phase when Dave Ragone was there. It was never like, oh, Dave Ragone came in and this got better and that got better. It looked pretty good in 2018. He was there in 2018 when Mitch was progressing. That was the double doink year. But after that, there wasn't really any riding the ship. And you would hope that, um, you know, Mark Helfrich and Dave Ragone, all guys that were there, would help to sort of do that, right? The ship, call the bad plays, keep the focus on the good plays. Never really happened. That continuity didn't show up in Chicago, so I'm a little more leery of Dave Ragone coming in as the offensive coordinator. We know that Arthur Smith is probably going to have a very hands-on role. Uh, that's certainly how he made his star at Tennessee, and it would be odd, especially these days, for him to just pitch that when he shows up in Atlanta, especially with all the talent he's got in front of him. Uh, so again, might not make a huge difference, but if you just said, hey, Dave Ragone's the new offensive coordinator for X team, what do you think? I'd be like, well, I'm going to give that an incomplete grade and we'll see. That's I think that's the operative word is we'll see what it looks like when he's actually working with a former MVP quarterback instead of a quarterback that's more likely than not going to be a backup journeyman for the rest of his career. Like we've we've seen a lot of coaches live and die by who their quarterback is regardless of what they do, good or bad. So Again, we'll see what it looks like when he's got Matt Ryan. Uh, I will say this for Arthur Smith. And, and I mean, just beyond him, like as, a, as an X's and O's guy, which he's clearly a very good one. Like you watch his interviews, uh, you know, when he popped in on Bussin' with the boys, Taylor Lewan's podcast a couple times. And, and just, you see the passion that he has for the game. You see his ability to connect to his players. Like he is, you know, the, the, the tired phrase leader of men. He absolutely is one. And I just, I respect the hell out of him. Um, I, I love, I love how much he loves football because it helps me to connect to somebody like him on a personal level because he, he is obsessed with football. And let's be real, if I'm a fan of the Falcons, I want my head coach to be absolutely obsessed with just being the best possible football coach on planet Earth. And he, he's one of those guys. So I, I personally think he was a fantastic hire. Like there's, there's some head coaches hire, head coach hires where I'm kind of like, eh, I guess we'll see. We'll see how it works out. Like I have never once wavered uh, in my belief of Arthur Smith. I think he's going to be fantastic for them. And I mean, you could do a lot worse as a first-year head coach than having Matt Ryan as your quarterback. I think having that kind of stability uh, for a guy who's never had this job before, a GM who's never had that job before, um, you know, the stability of having, like, a, a, a veteran coach like Dean Pease, and it's going to help Arthur in so many ways 
to have that kind of supporting structure around him. And also just the Falcons in general, I think are a well-run franchise. Like I know the records don't always reflect it, but I've always looked at the Falcons like going up to even to Mr. Blank as one of those franchises where it's like, God, I wish I had an ownership group like that. I, I wish I had support staff like that, like coming from somebody who brooded for the dumpster fire that is the Texans for my entire adult life. Like I know Falcons fans complain, but good Lord, do you know how lucky you people are to have Arthur Blank as your owner and, and, and Arthur Smith as your head coach now? Like I would kill for that. I would kill for that. And and I'm still seeing so many like divisive opinions. Like, good God! Like in in a couple of years, they're going to realize what they got there. Well, I think it's that way with the quarterback too, right? If you look at Falcons fans, there are there are Matt supporters, Matt Ryan supporters, right? And then there are Matt Ryan detractors saying, "Yeah, he's great, but what has he ever done? Right? Has he ever won a Super Bowl? Right?" And people point to MVP and passing yards and everything else. Matt Ryan is a very good quarterback. And franchises with very good quarterbacks, I don't want to say get complacent, but they get used to having one. Certainly, you can tell fans of a franchise that have a quarterback and fans of a franchise that do not have a stable quarterback situation. You've had a very stable quarterback situation in Atlanta for a while, but they get to the, okay, what's next? You know, we got a stable quarterback. He's a good guy. He can throw up a bunch of wins, can throw up a bunch of passing yards, but, you know, you start to get that sort of... uh, mid-career Andy Reid criticism, right? Can't win the big yeah. one, right? Can't, can't finish. Can't get yeah. us past this. Is You know, start over, right? You see a lot of that frustration. And, you know, this is a guy in Arthur Smith that came in and took Ryan Tannehill, who was considered good, but sort of middle of the road, right? Had potential, showed flashes, but wasn't consistent. Sound familiar, right? And you get Smith and Tannehill together and all of a sudden Tannehill ascends to being certainly a top half quarterback in the NFL, if not a top third quarterback in the NFL. And again, it's a guy that can push your, push your team to wins that they otherwise wouldn't have. You want that kind of guy coming in and saying, look, Matt, I know you're talented. I know you're good at a lot of things. I know you got a couple of solid years left. Let's go do it. Right. We have offensive talent around you. I'm going to give you a scheme that is going to, you've seen it all, you know, the protections, right? You very little is going to surprise you at this point in your career. You've been around the block in the NFL many times. I'm going to put you in a position to win every week. How's that sound? And to a guy like Matt Ryan, that's like, that's all I can ask for. I, I got talent. I got weapons. Now I've got a coach who's like, guess what? I'm going to give you a and B and one of them's going to win every week. What do you think? And I think that's a good segue to, to talking about their draft class because they clearly, and again, with the, with the restructure they did with him and, 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 you know, taking Kyle Pitts in the top four, like they clearly were like, we still believe in Matt. He's still got three or four more years. Let's make a run at this thing. You know, Tampa might only have like one more year left of this core being together. We'll see. Like they clearly had like a plan of like the next two years, we're going to make a run. And then the Julio thing happened. And just kind of when I when I put the draft class together in the context, including the Julio trade that just happened last week, like at the end of April, when they're getting Kyle Pitts, they're getting Richie Grant, Jalen Mayfield, Darren Hall, 
uh, Drew Dahlman, the, the center out of Stanford that we were loving in the fourth round. You know, Taquan Graham, highly athletic defensive tackle in the fifth. You get Avery Williams out of Boise State. And then Frank Darby, who you and I both love as a vertical threat, who's like your wide receiver four or five uh, in the sixth round at Arizona State. Last time he was healthy, he was getting like 22 yards a catch or something like that. And so you're looking at that draft class, and you're like, man, they're surrounding Matt Ryan with the talent. They're going to go after the Buccaneers. Let's go. Love it. Julio gets traded. And that's the thing that I'm having a hard time reconciling, is the mentality of sticking with Matt Ryan, and, you know, we're going to put Kyle Pitts and Julio and Gage and Calvin Ridley all together on one offense, and then... And then you trade Julio. And it's like, now it almost feels like a disconnect where it's like, well, if you're going to trade Julio and we love Kyle Pitts, it's like, why not just take Justin Fields at fourth? And that that was the thing I was really struggling with is it felt like they were kind of pulling themselves in two different directions between planning for the future and then, you know, going for it right now. And I know there was the reports that came out that said Julio wanted out as soon as they fired Dan Quinn because he was a big believer in Dan Quinn and they couldn't repair the relationship. And it's like, okay, that was October. So if you knew this was coming for months, that Julio was going to want out, and you were fielding offers, and that pissed him off even more, and then he demanded a trade because you fielded offers. Like, <laughs> if you knew this was coming, it's like, do you think you have enough without Julio to still make a run just because you drafted Cal Pitts? Like, that's the disconnect I'm having right now, is I feel like they kind of got one foot on both sides of the door, and I honestly, I'm not, I'm not even sure if they really know which way they want to go. Yeah, I... Certainly Falcons fans are echoing those sentiments that you just said. Like, if we're doing this, then what is this? I think they got to the point. It's not that they didn't know. I think they got to the point where they said, after June 1st is palatable. Right? Because we we pushed all this money into Matt's contract, which was when people were saying, oh, the Falcons are going to take a quarterback. I was like, the Falcons can't really take a quarterback. I mean, they can, but if he ascends... Like you're gonna be paying your backup forty million bucks over yeah, the and nobody wants years. to do that. You it's just not a great look. So they were very solidly, like you said, at the top behind Matt Ryan. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think Matt Ryan can be a very productive quarterback, especially with Smith and all the weapons. But they looked at that and they said, We have all this money tied up in Matt Ryan. And they looked at Julio and said, Julio's chunk of money. And he's going to have more money if we're going to keep him. Can we get him moved? And if so, what can we get for him and when? Because the when is what you're talking about, right? If you knew this was coming from October, why not move him pre-draft, get more draft picks, whatever else? And the the reason for the when, I think, is June 1st more than anything. For, for folks that don't know, June 1st is when the league year resets. And doing things before June 1st or after June 1st are very different financially. Now, could they have held on to Julio? Yeah, they could have, but it gives them more flexibility. And I think that they think that Gage can be their number two wide receiver and Pitts can be their number two threat, right? Calvin Ridley is purely the alpha. He played an alpha role while Julio was out last year, an underrated performance, absolutely a top wide receiver. So they already have that alpha position. They're not trying to replace that. And on most teams, if you were going to get rid of Julio Jones, you'd need a new alpha. You'd have to go get one, and that would be difficult. It's kind of like the argument against trading Russell Wilson, right? If you trade Russell Wilson, where are you going to replace him with? Most teams, if you trade Julio, what are you going to replace him with? You already have that guy on your team. You've got Ridley, and he played. Like, that's not a projection. 
he can be an A number one alpha wide receiver. Gage played very well in the third role. I think they he they think he can slide into the second role and Kyle Pitts can be their second overall sort of target, like Calvin's target one and Kyle Pitts is target two. And Gage can be that supporting third wide receiver for a much more reasonable contract. And they can get an asset for Julio while he's still going to grant them that. Right. They don't they don't drive him into the ground at the end and then lose him to free agency or whatever else. So I think it's more about the June 1st timing and them really thinking exactly that. Hey, we got Kyle Pitts. Kyle Pitts could could be our wide receiver, too, if we really wanted to play him there. But we're going to move him around. We're going to keep him creative. He's going to be our second target. And Gage can be the third target pretty easily after what he showed last year. And I, I think they're confident in that. And they just said, what can we get and how can we lessen the impact of Julio's money. And it was by trading him after June 1st. And again, I, I, I don't disagree. I think that was pretty bang on their mentality because I mean, God, even two or three years ago, they saw this coming. Like they drafted Calvin Ridley a year before they had to get rid of Mo Sanu. So, you know, this is a team that typically, you know, kind of takes problems ahead of when they need to be addressed maybe they thought that they could convince Julio to come back or, or maybe they really were planning on trading him after June 1st the whole time. Either way, I don't know. I I feel like the relationship could have been repaired, but there was so much financial incentive to not repair it. You know? Yeah, if, a reason if, not if, if to do makes... the thing that everybody wants them to do. And and look, Falcons fans are super sad about this. Julio is a beloved player, and and you you know this, right? You Texans fan for a long time, and when beloved player goes after a while, after a lot of contributions, Julio's only ever been a Falcon. Like all of his contributions have been two and four Atlanta, right? And now it's going to be him in another jersey, and that's just difficult. Like it's difficult yeah. for any fan base. It's I'm not blaming Falcons fans, or they can feel however they want to. Julio was their guy. And a lot of them were very attached to him, and rightfully so. He is a great football player. Like, this is not about Julio Jones's athletic ability, football ability. He is a great football player. And he's going to be an asset where he landed. That's that's not a thing. It's more about, so what were the Falcons thinking and why? And, and that's probably why. Would we have done the same thing? Eh, maybe. It's hard to have that much money tied up in, in just two positions, but at the same time, they knew it was coming, and I, I think they just took the timing and said, we can still be a really good offense. I mean, it's like, you know, when you saw Matt Forte in a Jets jersey for the first time, and you're like, God, that's gross. You know, like, it just There's doesn't look There's a lot right. of, yeah. I think every <laughs> every fan base has a few of those. Uh, yeah. If you look back five or six years, there's always a couple of players that really – even players that come into a team that aren't maybe drafted by the team. I think about, you talked about Matt Forte, but for me it's Thomas Jones also going to a Jets. Mm. Thomas Jones was only with the bears for a couple of years and they drafted said Benson. Jones was wildly more productive and, you know, hindsight says should have kept him, but they shipped him off and he had a couple more productive years, but it was really hard to see. It was like, man, we got that guy. We got him at the right time. He, you know, helped that team get to the super bowl and, you know, then you trade him off, and the guy that it didn't help that the guy that replaced him was not a star. Cedric this a, Benson. This, yeah, this yeah. was not a Julio and Calvin Ridley situation. It was a Thomas Jones and a hey that that you know that guy really didn't work out for the the way we thought he would. Um, so it made it even more difficult. But yeah, there's always players uh, 
who are with the team and move on, whether they came in in free agency or whether they came in the draft, and they just, yeah, fans are like, why? Why <laughs> did you do that? And there's a lot of that with Atlanta fans right now, and rightfully so. Looking at um, all of the players that they, they just drafted beyond Kyle Pitts, because we know Kyle Pitts is he's that dude. Wide receiver, tight end, doesn't matter what you call him. He can play in line. He can play H-back. Play X, play like slot. He, he does everything. Beyond Kyle Pitts, who's the obvious future superstar type talent, you know, getting the Hall of Fame grades coming out of Florida, you know, Daniel Jeremiah, you know, he's like, I compare him to TJ Hawkinson coming out a few years and they're like a different species. And TJ Hawkinson was seen as like one of the better tight end prospects the last decade. Like that's how highly Kyle Pitts is seen. Beyond him, the Richie Grant pick in the second round, you and I both loved extremely versatile safety, can play single high, can play in the slot, tough against the run. He's one of these guys like Trayvon Merrick um, and, you know, Tyree Gillespie, where he does everything. Like, he's a he's a scheme-proof safety, which I think the league is kind of going more and more to those kind of guys where it's less defined roles at safety and more of a we're going to have you do a little bit of everything, you know, the Kyle Duggars of the world. Uh, you got Jalen Mayfield out of Michigan, a little bit rich for my blood, um, how, how early they took him in the third round. I did not see tackle with him at all. I, I don't know if they're going to try him at tackle or guard. I think he's going to end up at guard long-term regardless. Again, a little bit rich for me, but he's not a bad player. I just didn't have a third-round grade on him. Uh, Darren Hall out of San Diego State. Uh, that one was a really interesting fit because he's hyper-athletic. I mean, hyper-athletic. And if I remember correctly, his... He has a connection to the DB coach, like a familial connection to the DB coach. So in a, in a COVID year where it's kind of hard to get, you know, information on guys, like they kind of had it. Or, 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 no, I think, it's, I think his DB coach at San Diego State was a relative of somebody in the Falcons coaching staff, if I remember correctly. That was the connection I read about. Uh, and so, you know, they had the book on him from the beginning. And the fact that he tested absolutely out of this world as well and you look at his film like the, the athleticism shows up on tape he's not just a workout warrior uh super super high upside db i think he could play corner or safety excited to see where he winds up for them uh drew dalman we mentioned at stanford uh i don't know if he'll start early on but i do think that he has a chance to start down the line at center for them Rock solid in pass protection, good zone blocker. Taquan Graham, again, I, I don't think he's going to start immediately because he's he's raw as hell. He's not ready, but extremely athletic. Really good de- developmental guy. Uh, Ogundeji from Notre Dame, uh, probably a rotational edge and special teamer. But really the one I want to highlight is Frank Darby. Uh, only had six catches in 2020 because of an injury. But when you go back and watch him in 2019 when he was healthy, uh, and Brandon Ayuk was on the other side of him. Like Frank Darby was a legitimate threat who just happened to be overshadowed by a superstar in in Ayuk. But like he was a legitimate deep threat. Showed up to the Senior Bowl after he recovered from injury. He was beating people really well down there in the one on ones. Really subtle route runner. And again, the deep speed is real. He's got legit four four speed. Getting him in the sixth round to, you know, potentially be their new Russell Gage. You know, they're maybe their new number three is going to be competing with, uh, I guess, Antonio Nunn and Cordero Patterson for that role, and I think he can actually win that role. Uh, overall, I, I really, really like what the Falcons did in their draft class. Didn't take a quarterback, which, again, is, is a debate you can have, but in terms of the talents they got, 
other than the Jalen Mayfield pick, I feel like they got good value at every single spot. Yeah, I was all in with the Falcons draft uh, for the first two picks. I mean, Pitts, hey, they did it. There was a lot of speculation they might. Hard. I'm not going to say impossible because it's not impossible to miss on anybody, but really hard to miss when you grab a guy like Kyle Pitts. Uh, Yeah, every evaluation on him across the board from all teams, everybody was like, all world, he's amazing. So, and then they get Richie Grant, player that I absolutely love. You said he could play single high, he could play close to the line. He can also play corner. He has corner skills. Like, he was one-on-one at the Senior Bowl, and he was manning guys up. He looks like a corner. So, he's one of those guys. Love that pick. And I was like, man, Pitts and Grant, that is an amazing start. Great job. Again, brand new GM, so you don't know exactly what the tendencies are, how they're going to go. And I was like, that's super strong. And then they go Mayfield. Was early for me as well. Don't really care about guard and tackle. Where they put him is where they put him. Darren Hall was a bit surprised. It was like, wow, especially with people that were still on the board that I liked a little bit better. But again, they've got some different inside information. So I feel like they kind of went super strong. I don't want to say got off track, but just had different values on those two guys in the middle. And then I really like what they did to finish out with Dahlman. Um, doubt he'll start. They have Matt Hennessy there, who they were really excited about. Another senior bowl standout from the year before. Taquan Graham, super athletic. Just they're, you know, again, you get him in the fifth, you're, you're gambling on the athletic potential because he has tons of it. And if they can polish up the sharp edges, Ogan Deji, I like as a more consistent contributor right now than Taquan Graham, but he doesn't have the upside. Um, but I think he can be a very good rotational player. I thought he was underrated. Avery Williams, not to be overlooked, has crazy speed at corner, but is a huge special teams contributor, is a guy that can return punts and kicks for you. And if you're getting that guy at the end of the deep end of the fifth round in the in the compensatory picks, that's a swing you're willing to take to try and, hey, let's get let's get a little field position here. Let's get maybe a special teams touchdown or two um, over the course. And then Frank Darby, we really liked was underrated, I think largely because of the injury, just sort of out of sight, out of mind. But yeah, when you go back to that tape with him and Ayuk, you're like, who's this guy, right? I'm supposed to be watching this guy, but who's this guy? Cause he keeps making plays. So I really feel like from Dalman down, which is five guys, they got value all the way down the board. And the, and the top was super duper blue chip strong. Both of those guys, I think first rounder, they end up getting Richie Grant in the second, but Richie Grant had first round skills um, and is a super valuable player in the modern NFL. So real strength at the top for Terry Fano and, and then at the bottom, just filled out with useful guys that are going to be depth or bring a role on special teams, bring a rotational piece. Just felt like a really strong fit draft to me. And, uh, you know, even the guys they got after the draft kind of transitioning over to the UDFAs, first of all, they had a ton of them. They had 19 guys signed. I don't even know if I can fit all of them on screen. So I do just want to kind of highlight a few that really jumped out to me. Uh, first things first, Felipe Franks from Arkansas, super high upside, toolsy uh, quarterback prospect, mobile, just tons of size, great arm strength, inconsistent as all hell. Um, you know, he's he's kind of the annual like, oh, but just what if he hits, you know, quarterback prospect where it's like if he hits his ceiling, he's going to be great. They rarely do. But it's again, he's an undrafted free agent, so it's OK to dream here. But man, if he hits, he's going to be so good because he's got just tools on tools on tools. Um, kind of surprising that somebody with his kind of tools didn't get drafted. So I don't know if there was a medical thing or what, just because it's 
kind of hard to find dudes with his physical profile, like his size and mobility and arm strength and everything like that, just to not even get drafted was, was weird. Um, and then you kind of go up the list a little bit. Uh, your favorite, Antonio Nunn, wide receiver out of Buffalo. One of those guys, kind of like a Jacoby Myers, where does he blow you away with any physical traits? No, but he's going to be in the right place at the right time. And he's going to make the catch. Like He's going he's gonna to fulfill the job description of wide receiver. So again, I, I expect him to, um, if he doesn't make the team, I do, I do think he'll at least be on the practice squad. I don't know if they're going to let him go because he's just, he's kind of crafty and I don't know if they're, if they're going to be willing to, to, um, to just kind of release him into the ether. Like, I, I think there's something there and I agree with you on that one. Cause I know he's one of your favorites. And then, uh, Javian Hawkins from Louisville, who, if he doesn't make this team with this running back depth chart, I don't know what other team he could make because this is like prime, prime real estate for him. Like he, he fulfills a role that nobody else on the roster does. In my opinion, like when you look at his explosiveness, his change of direction, like he's the dude that you give five to seven touches to every single game and see if he can rip something off. I don't think they have that anywhere else in their backfield right now. Um, at least maybe not to his level. Like there's guys that fill that role, but I don't know if they do it as well as JV and Hawkins will. Again, I fully expect him to make the team, and I think he's going to dress every single week as a UDFA. Yeah, I'm not sure. We'll have to see. The thing about Javian Hawkins is size. Everybody, 5'9", 195, but he is explosive, and he brings that explosive element. And it's interesting. Antonio Nunn, you talked about another guy, uh, Errol Thompson. For Mississippi State, the linebacker, definitely a guy that had a draftable grade on a lot of boards. I think he will stick it. Certainly on the practice squad, might not make the 53. We'll see. Felipe Frank, she touched on. Um, there's a few in there. Again, 19. Not, not weird to see a, a large UDFA class on a team with a brand-new general manager brand new head coach. They're going to sift through, find their guys. They're going to give a lot of people chances to play. So I would have been much more surprised if they'd brought in like four, uh, but they went all over the board. It's not just one position. They got cornerbacks and running backs, a bunch of edges. Uh, again, talk about quarterback, tight end, a couple of wide receivers, a couple of safeties, whole bunch of OL, right? Including, and this is always fun for me. Uh, whenever I see a school, that I was not aware of <laughs> because I used to work in higher education and then I got into doing the draft. And so through that, I know most names of most schools in the whole country. And they grabbed a guy from the South Dakota school of mines. And I was like, you got I me. I didn't even know there was a South Dakota school of mines. I knew there was a Colorado <laughs> school of mines, but I've never seen South Dakota school of mines. So shout out to Jack Batho, the fourth an offensive tackle out of the South Dakota School of Mines. Uh, I just looked it up. I went through every running back listed on their roster right now. Hawkins is the only one that runs under four five. I want to talk about that though because there was a guy, and this is one of the this is one of the beauties of these episodes. Is we're going through the whole roster. We're going through the existing roster. Going through free agents lost, free agents added, draft, and UDFA. So it's it's pretty much the whole player personnel package for a team. And occasionally there's a guy that you get really excited about in the draft. He goes to a situation, he gets buried on the depth chart, whatever. He makes a team, but does nothing, right? But you remember back and then things change. They get a new head coach who likes big bruising running backs that show some speed. 
and you're like Quad- quadriolison quadriolison <laughs> right yeah. guy that we got excited about and he went to the falcons and we're like this guy's talent we talked about him last year didn't turn out that the coaching staff really thought much of him or, or maybe he didn't make an impact maybe he didn't show up in practice who knows we weren't there now you get arthur smith and he's he's thumbing through his index cards or of course his digital ipad of all the players that he's got and he's like all right okay running back room wide receiver room and he's like oh look at this guy <laughs> <laughs> man he's big i want to six see one two thirty yeah two thirty yeah big for ring back and he shows some real flash he did at pit and it was one of the things that we both liked about him and i'm like if anybody can figure out how to use quadriolus in the right way it's arthur smith right so i'm kind of excited you go from excited to hey he didn't do anything to kind of back to tepidly excited you're like maybe this guy who understands how to use big running backs to great effect can look at Quadriolison and say, maybe you're the guy I give five carries a game to because I really like your style and you're going to break some off or you're going to tire people out, whatever it is. So always a, a fun shift for players who maybe were a little bit buried on the old depth chart or depth chart under the old regime. New regime comes in and somebody sees a spark. We saw this with Curtis Samuel when Matt Rule came in, right? The, the previous regime just couldn't really figure out that offensive weapon thing, half wide receiver, half running back. They never really got the balance right. Matt Rule coming from college is like, I know exactly what to do with you. I'm totally familiar with that role. Are you ready to go? And Curtis Samuel's like, hell yeah, I'm ready to go. And he has a much better year. So um, always interesting to look for those opportunities um, as the roster turns over. And there's going to be a lot of roster turnover. Guys are going to leave. A bunch of these UDFAs are going to make it. Like, it's, it's a tumultuous time when there's a new gm new coach combo there's going to be a lot of churn on the roster what was interesting well i guess it's maybe not surprising uh more so but really the the only two guys that they spent money on in terms of veteran veteran free agency were Cordero patterson and mike davis now that's it's a product of them not really having a whole lot of cap room but those were the two guys that, that they really wanted to spend on, which was bringing over Davis from Carolina, who had a lot of success last year as a journeyman running back, uh, you know, backing up Christian McCaffrey. When Christian went down, Mike was really solid. Like, And again, they had nobody <laughs> at running back, so I, I, I can see why they did that. Uh, but the Cordero Patterson thing, they gave him $3 million, which for a guy like Patterson, he's pretty much just a returner at this point. But they gave him three million solely for that role, and I remember, um, you know, I put out a tweet not too long ago. You put up Cordero Patterson's accolades compared to Devin Hester, and it's one of those things where it's like, if Devin Hester goes in the Hall of Fame, Cordero Patterson has to go in the Hall of Fame. You look at his All Pros, you look at his return records, his Pro Bowls, like. He's he might be the most prolific return man in the history of the game, and I remember first looking at his number three million. I was like three million for just a returner, and then I looked at his accolades. I was like, well, I guess if he's literally the best at his job that's ever been on the planet, yeah, three million makes a lot of sense. But I I can't, you know you're a Bears fan, so you watch Hester play for a long years or for a lot of years. Am I wrong and think that that Cordero Patterson is going to be a Hall of Famer one day? Because I mean he's he's kind of already there for me. Yeah, the Hall of Fame thing. Not something I'm probably going to touch because there are people that don't believe that Devin Hester belongs in the Hall of Fame, which I think is crazy. They're wrong. They're just I, wrong. Okay. <laughs> I'll let you say that's totally fine. Uh, Cordell Patterson, 
first off, he was making five for the Bears. So he, he took a two million. Five million? million? They're paying really? him five million bucks for the last two years per year. Huh. And they tried to use him uh, first as a wide receiver, which we all know was not a no. good choice. No. They moved him yeah. running back, and he actually showed a bunch of improvement at running back throughout the year last year. And what I mean by that is before that, it was just give Cordero the ball. He'll look for an opening and he'll just run like right into it at, at pretty high speed. And he's a big dude. This is something from going to training camp a couple of years ago for the bears the last year in Bourbon. A. Um, standing next to Cordero Patterson is like Devin Hester was not a big guy. He was very shifty and very fast. Cordero Patterson is built like a tight end. Like he's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And, the thing that he brings that was so much fun to watch in Chicago for the past couple of years is he is an awesome gunner. Like he is one of the best gunners in the league because he is fast. He is big. He is physical and he is always the first one down there and he will obliterate guys. And so when you're talking about a guy with impact on special teams, everybody's talking about returns, return yards. Does he score? What's the average field position? Well, he turns right around and plays on the other special teams unit and crushes people. And is really, really good at it. Um, now, there's an argument, is that worth $5 million? And my partner on the other podcast, JB on Bears Over Beers, was a huge Cordero Patterson fan. He's like, I don't really care. Like, I love watching him play special teams both ways. I want him on the team. There's a financial argument to make there, but they get him for $2 million less than what the Bears are paying him. And he's going to contribute in those ways. If he gives you anything as a couple of carry, like, gadget running back, which he got better at, he would start to actually make moves yeah. by the end of the year. He started to, like, hesitate before he went through a hole and then use his speed and his size. And it was like, whoa, if he figures this thing out, like, if he gains some instinct at running back and can give you anything there, um, not as a starter, but any kind of boost on offense there, like, $3 million's not a bad price for that. Hall of Fame... Uh, Hall of Fame for special teamers is always a thing. There's just such a backlog at other positions, but he's a fun player to watch. He's a really good team guy. He's an amazing athlete, great special teamer going both ways. And if he can give you anything extra that Arthur Smith can draw up as a trick play, like Patterson is a big, fast guy. Not not super shifty, but he is a big, fast dude. I look at it this way. So he played 200 snaps. I just looked it up. He played 200 snaps for Chicago last year, most of those on special teams. Mm-hmm. So you're paying $5 million for 200 snaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, a top-tier wide receiver that's making about $15 million a year, so three times that, is playing five times as many snaps. So I think that's probably the angle that JB's looking at it, where it's like we're paying a lot of money for a dude. Like we're playing, we're paying a third of the price – for 20% of the snaps. Mathematically, I can see the argument for it. But again, we're talking about a guy that's six-time All-Pro, you know, won a Super Bowl with New England as a key contributor on special teams and as a running back. Remember, he, he played running back when there was injuries, and he was pretty damn good at it for the Patriots for that year. Uh, you know, he was on the, the All-Decade team. He's got, uh, he's tied for career kickoff return. Like, that's, he's the GOAT of special teamers. So $3 million for maybe 200 snaps. So you're paying 20% of the price for 20, 20% of the snaps. I think when you look at it that way, like $3 million, I was like, yeah, that kind of makes sense to me. Like, I, I don't know. I, if you only have $10 million to work with in cap room going into free agency, you might as well bring in the best dude at this very specific role that maybe we've ever seen, and then also Mike Davis. 
<laughs> not to be insulting to Mike Davis, but no, Mike. Again, Mike's <laughs> another guy that played in Chicago, right? Before he went to Carolina, he was in Chicago. That's and true. He was a Bear. That's I've right. always liked Mike Davis. He he followed a prolific running back in college, and he was one of those guys that was like, "Hey, he's not that guy, but he's really good. Like this guy can play." And you know, lately there's been a an uproar on social media about the size of his quads <laughs> because he has <laughs> massive legs. But Mike Davis is a very productive dude, and like you said, they didn't really have anything at running back. They needed some stability, and Mike Davis is as stable as it gets. Um, he's as productive as it gets, and they can sort of slot people in behind him. But he's going to be the guy that gets the bulk of those carries, and he'll be pretty productive. He always is. You can look at his career and. He hasn't had a ton of down years. He's had lower years and better years, but he's a very solid, stable guy. And that's what they wanted. And they went and got it. Is five and a half a little bit more than maybe you or I would want to pay for running back, considering you can get him as a UDFA? Um, maybe a little bit more, but, uh, you know, it's Mike Davis. You know what you're getting. It's a known known. And, you know, last episode, we just ripped the Raiders for, for signing Kenyon Drake to what was it like 7 million a year or something like that somewhere around there a little bit different scenario the falcons don't have josh jacobs they have nobody like they just they needed a dude and and they were not in a position to spend draft capital in the second round on a javante williams you know they were definitely not going to be able to get a Najee harris in the first round uh without trading down and giving up kyle pitts like they, they weren't going to get uh etienne like they just they weren't going to get any of the top tier backs in this class. I I doubted they were even going to be in range for Khalil Herbert. Obviously they were because Herbert fell, inexplicably. Uh, but I I can see why a month before the draft they're like we're not going to get any of these guys. We, we don't we don't have anybody. <laughs> we don't have Quadri- a Josh Jacobs. Quadriolison. I know I know uh, I I know you love. I mean I'm excited. I I want to see that guy get an opportunity, and we say this every year. We want to see guys succeed. People think, oh, and we say, I don't think this guy's that great in the draft, or I don't, you know, I had a lower round grade on him. They think we're bagging on the player. Nothing better than that guy that went in the sixth round, you know, getting a starting role or UDFA showing up in Jacksonville last year and blowing the doors off. Like, that's fun, man. You want to see everybody get that chance. Is everybody going to get that chance? No. Right? Yeah. But it's awesome when they do, and that's what we're rooting for. So I want to see Quadri Allison get a chance and see what he's got. Who knows? Maybe he's great. We don't know. Give him a shot. I'd love to see it. Why don't we move over to Carolina? Uh, one of the must-watch te- teams this year for me, probably for you too, just so much exciting young talent, um, exciting young coaches, you know, with Matt Rule and Joe Brady there. I... I I don't expect them to win the division, but I do think that they're going to give Tampa a legitimate run here. I think they are going to be a tough out each and every week. Their schedule is brutal. So maybe their record won't reflect the talent that I think they have by the end of the year just because the schedule is absolutely insane. But man, this is going to be a really, really hard team to beat week in and week out. Uh, let's start with the uh, front office review. You've got Scott Fitterer going into year one at general manager, replacing the dearly departed uh, Marty Herney. Well, he's not dead. He just got fired. That, that like, sounded that sounded a lot worse I was like, coming wait out. Wait a minute. Oh yeah, no. no Marty's yeah. Marty's fine. <laughs> Marty Scott's fine. just currently employed by Carolina. We'll yes. go. We'll go with that. 
Uh, Matt Rule going into year two. Joe Brady also going into year two. He was considered a hothead coaching candidate. Uh, Phil Snow also, by the way, uh, year two for defensive coordinator. So again, it's a staff that pretty much the opposite of, of, say, the Saints, which has been together forever. This is a staff that's been together uh well the coaches have only been together for two years and then scott fitterer just joining this year so they're all still kind of getting to know each other and i think you saw some growing pains particularly in kind of the middle of the season last year for carolina um but again you you see the flashes of talent you see some of their young players really stepping up and just being absolute workhorses uh you know i i look at yeter grossmatos who i think the world of Derek brown who was one of the better interior pass rushers in the league um who's that hybrid brian, brian burns uh, well there's brian uh, jeremy chin jeremy chin that's yeah. who i was thinking of who was looking like a you know a defensive rookie of the year candidate basically from the first snap he played again some of the young talent here uh, on the offensive side of the ball dj moore you know uh Terrace Marshall, you and I both love. Like it's, it's just exciting. Like this is the most excited I think I've been to watch a Panthers season since you know Cam Newton's heyday around 2014, 2015, where like I felt like every single week they had a chance to win. Yeah, this is the we're gonna give Sam Darnold all the chances, right? We we pushed a couple draft picks to next year. I love their draft strategy. We talked about that on the best drafts episode we did. Scott Fitterer. Uh, David Tepper, the new owner, really set that tone at the top. Fitter came up with this plan and said, look, if there's if it's equal or lower, we're trading down, right? If there's not somebody we absolutely have to have, they, you know, stuck and stayed at the top. But other than that, they traded down sort of religiously throughout the draft. They hung up the sign early and said, we're open for business, traded down like five times. Uh, got some capital for next year, but really it was about, Let's load up on as many weapons for Sam Darnold as we can get, right? Last year was the all-defensive draft for Carolina. This year, let's make sure we get pieces for him. So Sam has as many weapons as he's ever had. He has the best offensive coordinator maybe that he's ever had uh, in his life. This is the best chance that Darnold's ever had. So if you're a Darnold apologist and you said, but the scheme... But the coaches, but the you you can you can put stock in all those arguments. If if most of the people on Carolina stay healthy this year, those arguments are done. He's got a great coaching staff. They've surrounded him with weapons. Can he stop seeing ghosts? Is the is the classic you know Sam Darnold quote. And I'm excited to see it because I don't think we've seen what Darnold can really do. And no, this is the year. This is the no excuses. Like you got a scheme, you got a coach that can get the most out of many players. They've surrounded you with really good talent. Let's go. Let's see what you got. And if he hits, then they've got to pay him. And people have criticized that move. You can talk about the financials, but they looked, they said, we're not going to get one of the top quarterbacks that we want. What's the best we can do? They get Darnold, surround him with talent and say, show us what you got, Sam. Uh, speaking of surrounding with talent, I'll, I'll go through their draft class real quick here. Uh, JC Horn, at eighth overall, my highest graded DB, either at corner or safety, regardless of, of DB position, since Jalen Ramsey came out of Florida State back in 2016. So we're talking, what, a five-year gap here. Um, again, one of the highest graded DBs I've ever seen. He's a phenomenal press corner. Uh, 
Uh, Terrace Marshall in round two, pick 27 of round two out of LSU. He was in my tier two of receivers, just a hair below, um, you know, the, the, the top two guys there. Uh, he was in the same tier of like, of like Elijah Moore for me, even though he went after Elijah Moore by a pretty significant margin. I, I still saw him as that same caliber of player. Different skill set, but I absolutely love Terrace Marshall as a go up and get it you know, contested catch receiver that also has really good vertical stretch speed, led college football, uh, led the entire nation in uh, contested catch percentage last year at about 82%, which is just ridiculous. Um, Brady Christensen in round three at a BYU. If they want to run, uh, if they want to run outside zone, they pick the right guy to do it. He was probably one of the top three to four tackles, uh, in my opinion, in terms of being able to reach block and outside zone. And, uh, you know, not just kind of play for a kick out block and say, oh, I can't get there. I'm just going to ride you to the edge. Like he can actually get there on like a wide nine and reach block him in space as an offensive tackle, which is insane. Like his athleticism is scary, which is why he works so well in that system. Uh, Tommy Tremble, who's I don't want to call him a tight end. He's more of an H-back, but he blocks his ass off. I mean, he plays with incredible physicality. Not super well-developed as a receiver, but again, the effort is there as a blocker. Uh, really, really like him. Uh, Davion Nixon, you know, a lot of people were seeing him as like a top 50 talent. I guess I sort of agree with that if we're just talking about talent, but when you look at the film, he's not a top 50 player. He went right about where I thought he should in the fifth round. Extremely inconsistent. When it's there, it's there, but it's not there very often. I'll just say that. Uh, Keith Taylor went a little bit later than I expected as a true you know, press corner prospect out of Washington. Had a really nice senior bowl. Pretty much anything that was an outside release, he was locking down, uh, which is a boundary corner that's playing to the sideline. That's what you want to see. Uh, Deontay Brown uh, out of Alabama, massive, massive dude. He's like 340, 350 at this point, down from 365 uh, earlier this offseason. Uh, he's he's somebody where I was kind of like, I don't know about the scheme fit. I don't really see him working in outside zone, so maybe they have other plans for him, or maybe they just wanted to see if they could get him to lose weight to fit more outside zone. I, I guess we'll see, but it's a six-round pick, so who cares? Shai Smith. Very solid slot receiver on a team that already has a bunch of very solid slot receivers. So we'll see where he fits into the mix. But that just might have been, you know, a guy that was sitting there and like, well, we don't need him, but we'll we'll just grab him. Uh, and then Thomas Fletcher, the long snapper out of Alabama, one of the best draft calls out of anybody this this uh, this draft season. Go on YouTube and look at his uh, his phone call when he got drafted. It's amazing. And then uh, Phil Hoskins, uh, your guy out of Kentucky, massive dude. Just a, 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 a tree stump in the middle of the defensive line. Overall, when you look at this draft class, um, the big thing that sticks out to me is a change in defensive mentality. This is a team that was top five in zone coverage run last season. They really rarely ran man coverage. But when I look at picking up J.C. Horn, I look at picking up Keith Taylor, uh, that to me signals that not we're going to run single high structures. We're going to run press man coverage because that's what our DBs are good at. We're going to beat you up off the line of scrimmage. Good luck dealing with our defensive front while your receivers are all jammed up. Like that's the mentality I think they're going to be playing with this year because they can. 
And at least I, for one, am very excited to see it. Yeah, it was a really interesting draft. And J.C. Horn at the top, stick and stay, sort of ultimate matchup defensive weapon in this draft. Gives them the ability to do whatever else they want with the other 10 guys on defense, right? They can say, J.C., take that guy. And then that guy can be anybody. Can be the slot receiver. You talked about Elijah Moore, like... He covered Elijah Moore from the slot. Uh, he covered Kyle Pitts. He covered outside receivers. You just put Horn on whoever you want, whoever the hot hand is on the opposing offense and say, take care of him uh, so we don't have to worry about him, and then we'll run our coverage to what's left. And that's a real advantage. You see the Rams do it with Jalen Ramsey. So Horn, again, they went all defense last year. They start with defense again, and then they go on an offensive run. Terrence, Terrence Marshall one of my favorite big outside receivers thought he was wildly underrated in this draft. Everybody was talking about Jamar Chase and they should be Marshall on the other side was not equally as good, but very, very good and just didn't get a lot of the spotlight. I think he can eventually be a number one. Like I could see him being like AJ Brown in a couple of years. Christensen, we talked about, there's some talk that they're going to play him at guard. I'd really like to see them give him a try at tackle, especially given their roster, but they they've said in minicamp a couple times that they think they like him at guard. We'll see. I they think would, he can be a they fine want, guard. They, I, they want I, him I, at... I, I, I mean, Greg Greg Little's their left tackle. Uh, I know. Uh. You and I see this the same way. <laughs> I am not disagreeing. I saw that and my heart died a little bit, but he'll be a fine guard if they put him at guard. Again, they, they've they got that figured. We'll see how that works. Uh, Tremble, great athlete. Like, yes, he's physical. Yes, he's a good blocker. He was underused as a wide receiver. Uh, he does need some polish there, but the athleticism is not short. He is extremely athletic. So I'm he's a very interesting wild card. I want to see how they use him. I agree he's more of a move, H-back kind of a guy uh, than he is a straight tight end. But that doesn't mean he's not going to be effective, especially with a guy like Joe Brady who could be creative. Chuba Hubbard, I went back and looked at his blocking because a couple of fans said, I didn't see it. And I was like, no, absolutely. He was a great blocker. Here to say, he's not as great as I thought he was. And I probably <laughs> conflated him with another guy. And you're like, EJ, how is that possible? If you watch 25 running backs in about 14 days, you can absolutely do it, especially late at night. You can be thinking of the guy that you watched before that and saying, oh, no, he's a great blocker. And I was like, no, no, I've got time notes in all my all my write-ups. I'll go back and find the great blocking reps. And I went back and I looked at the ones that I had listed as great blocking reps. They weren't great. They were not terrible, but they were not great. I was thinking of somebody else. I still haven't figured out who that was, but it wasn't Chuba Hubbard. So The Cincinnati kid? Maybe, uh, maybe I, again, you watched that many and I, I didn't record what order I watched them in, but I watched a lot in a, I didn't leave myself enough time for running back Palooza this year. Sorry, folks. It happens. Uh, but no, Chuba Hubbard's blocking is not as good as I remember on a second watch. And I was like, mm, he's okay. He's not tremendous. Um, so I was thinking of somebody else, but as a runner, he's a little bit inconsistent. I like his choices outside. And this again, speaks to outside zone versus inside zone. His choices inside to me, sometimes he can not see the hole that's there inside. So his, his sort of decision vision on the inside is a little bit more suspect for me than it is on the outside. If he gets outside, look, he's got great speed. He's very productive. Again, not 2020, 2019. You go back, he had a tremendous season. So the talent's there. 
and then Davion Nixon. I cannot wait for short yardage this year for the Panthers where they have Derek Brown, Davion Nixon, and Phil Hoskins. And then whoever I'm, else they... I'm running it at Nixon. Go for it. Like, he's a strong <laughs> dude. He is a singular path. I'm with you. When he hits, and when he hits, it's vertical. Like, it's upfield. Yeah. Like, he blows through with power and destroys somebody. He's not a guy that's going to... He's not great on stunts. He's not great on sidestepping guys, swiping guys. He doesn't guys. stack and shed. He it just is, penetrates. It yeah. is all power straight up. And yeah, of those three, I would run it at him too. But if he hits, it's going to be an ugly tackle for loss. So it'll be a lot of fun to watch that much power lined up. And again, they'll have, you know, Burns or whoever else on the edge and, you know, big front. It's going to be interesting to see if they did that on purpose or if they just, again, said, hey, he's there in the seventh. Phil Hoskins was a guy that popped for me on 2019 tape watching the University of Kentucky. Um, Shy Smith, a crazy value. Again, not going to blow you away, but super productive. Saw him on Brian Edwards's tape again the year before. Went back this year. I was like, man, that guy's he's really consistent. He's got good hands. Not a lot of people talking about him. He's not going to blow anybody away physically, but he's a really good interior slot receiver um that just didn't get enough love and they got him right where a lot of people had him slotted um keith taylor really like him even if he's just sort of horns kind of backup as the press man boundary guy that they can try and single up not at all the same player but we both thought he was underrated for for what he brought to the table which is a very particular skill set he's quite good at it now uh undrafted free agents i think you and i both agree that we love what they did in the draft but undrafted free agents I really like what they did there too, particularly because they got one name that I would be stunned if he doesn't make the team, and that's David Moore. You know, when we did our, our UDFA special, we, I think we put the Panthers in the category where it's like, we don't care what the rest of the undrafted class was. They got this one guy. The one guy they got was David Moore, who, why he went undrafted, Lord knows. He should not have got undrafted. You, you look at him... Uh, at the Senior Bowl, stoning dudes that went top 50, top 60, and just talking shit to him the entire time. He was having fun dominating people. As an interior offensive lineman, I don't care if it's center or if it's guard, he could play both. Like, this dude's going to make the team. And when I look at their depth chart, again, assuming that Brady Christensen's not playing guard, he's going up against Dennis Daly, Deontay Brown, Pat Elfline, John Miller, he could start. <laughs> yeah, he could ask, start. <laughs> ask Vikings fans about Elfline. Uh, yeah, you know, Moore is a guy that we talked about exactly in those tones on the UDFA episode. Was was they got this guy? I don't know why he went undrafted, but they got this guy, and that's all they need for that class to be good because he is probably going to stick and stay. He might start. If not, he's their top swing guard. I would put him at guard. Um, and that would be a reason for me not to put Brady Christensen at guard. It's like, I got David Moore. I think David Moore is great at guard. David Moore is not a tackle. Brady Christensen, I think, could be a tackle. So that would be the balance for me there. But uh, Patty Fisher was a guy that I liked, but is going to lack a little bit of speed, but is a smart and pretty big uh, middle linebacker, good at diagnosing, but plays in a, a smaller cone than you want from an interior linebacker these days uh doesn't have true speed to get out to the edge he can get to the numbers pretty well the true edge he can get run around he's just not that fleet of foot and he's tight in his hips 
Uh, but Spencer Brown from UAB was a guy that I did like as a running back. Um, again, not going to blow any of their starters out of the water. Not a guy that's going to add a huge amount of pop, but a super consistent guy that I think they could stash on the practice squad. And, you know, if they run into injury issues again with the running back, I could see him getting called up with the with the new rules, playing for a couple of weeks. Um, he's a very solid guy. Didn't get a ton. He got some love in the draft run up. Uh, but again, a guy I thought would get drafted. And just because running back's been devalued, they get him as an undrafted free agent. Yeah, Brown to me was, he's a very different running back than Christian McCaffrey, which is why I think they like him because he just, he gives a different element, um, really good contact balance and power. Not saying Christian doesn't have that, but Brown, I think is a little bit, uh, I think he's got a little bit more of a hammer quality to him despite his size. Like I'm just talking about play style, really good short area quickness, um, Again, we're not talking on the level of Christian McCaffrey, but again, for, for that kind of role where it's like, I'm running in between the tackles, um, I'm taking dudes with me, like, I think he can kind of sift and sort and get from hole to hole. The problem that he has, uh, where Christian far, far, far outpaces him, is that he gasses out after the second level really quick. Like, his, he's a 4-6 guy, and... That's not like a, oh, he had a bad start in his time. Like, not nah, he's a 4-6 dude. After the first 10 yards, all bets are off. Whereas Christian, like, he breaks something, he's gone. This dude, you give him a really good hole, he'll get you a first down, but not much else. So I, I think he's somebody that you bring in, like, again, you're taking off carries from Christian. Like, if you're ahead by a touchdown or whatever in the fourth quarter and you just kind of want to reduce wear and tear you give this dude some carries he's not going to lose yardage he's just going to churn and churn and churn and and that I think is going to be the role that's probably the role that honestly they saw Mike Davis having before Mike Davis had to be the starter and this is just another dude who's going to fill in in that area um now looking at uh veteran free agents they were very active there as well bringing in a whole bunch of guys, uh, you know, role players. I mentioned Pat Elfline. They brought him in from the Jets uh, on a three-year, $13.5 million deal. Again, I don't care what they paid him. There's a decent chance that David Moore takes his job by Thanksgiving. Um, A.J. Bouye they brought in, uh, which to me signals even more like we are going to play man coverage because that's what A.J. Bouye is very good in is he is playing off-man coverage and he's driving on it, and he's breaking balls up. I know he's older now, he's 30, but I still think he can play. Um, they brought in Daquan Jones from Tennessee, who's a guy that you and I, I think, have both loved since he since he came out, um, just as a, a really rock-solid guy that you can put anywhere from, like, three-tech out to five or six, and he's going to be rock-solid against the run. They brought in uh, Denzel Perriman, you know, the human bowling ball from the Chargers to add to linebacker depth. I don't trust him in coverage at all, but he can really stop the run. So there's a role for him there. Uh, Hassan Reddick was probably the biggest name uh, that they brought in. He was only had a one-year $8 million deal, but I think that he took that le- that low of an amount for a guy who's coming off double-digit sacks because he knows that Matt Rule knows how to use him. <laughs> they have a history. And so I think Rule is going to be like, look, we're not going to make you an inside linebacker like Arizona tried to do for the first couple of years of your career. You are an outside linebacker. You are an edge rusher. You're going to rush the passer. You're going to make plays in coverage. You know, you're going to be stunting off of Derek Brown, caving in an entire side of the offensive line. 
he's going to be productive because he's with a coaching staff that A, knows him, and B, knows how to use him. I think he's going to be uh, one of those guys where eight million by midseason, when he's got like four and a half sacks already and a bunch of tackles for loss and some PBUs and maybe an interception, you're going to be like, "Damn, that's a steal!" Like this, uh, this is the signing that I think I'm probably most excited about out of all of them is Hassan Reddick. Uh, they brought in Delano Hill from Seattle, uh, probably going to be a backup safety for them, I'm assuming, and then Cam Irving. Got a two-year, $10 million deal at tackle. Again, if Cam Irving is your starting tackle, like if he takes the job from Greg Little and not Brady Christensen, that to me is a problem. That means that there's something wrong with Brady Christensen. Because if Brady Christensen can't beat out Cam Irving and can't beat out Greg Little, that's an issue to me. But that's kind of their overall uh, landscape at free agency. They brought in a lot of guys that I like a lot, spent some money, that maybe I wouldn't have spent like the Cam Irving deal, but overall they had money to burn. And um, I, I like what they did. What about you? Yeah, I love the Hassan Reddick bit. He had an underrated year out in the desert in Arizona. Uh, people started to get uh, hip to the numbers by the end of the season, but he was, he found his role as a disruptor. And they already have Burns. They've got, we've talked already about the defensive line talent they've got. They bring in Daquan Jones as another, you like, and I, you know, I would put Daquan Jones in, in that big package I was talking about ahead of the guy from Iowa, because Daquan Jones is really good at that role. He will stand folks up and make the tackle, right? A uh, gap and a half. He is good to go. And they just have so many guys on defense. It's going to be fascinating to see them try and play in waves how they use Reddick, Reddick and Burns coming off the outside. Like, yes, please. And then you got all those guys we've talked about on the inside. Like, this is going to be a really aggressive, not even front seven, but front five. Not as wild about Perryman. Elfline was a head scratcher to me, as was Irving, um, even before the draft. Uh, the other one I really like is, well, two, Dan Arnold, again, underrated coming from a big season with Arizona in terms of touchdowns and they don't have a ton at tight end. So I think he could be a guy that sneaks in and and gives them some contribution and David Moore from Seattle, uh, underrated kind of a guy that like, if I'm shy Smith, I go up to David Moore and go, I kind of want to be what you are when I grow up in the NFL. So show me what you got because (laughs) we're, you know, they're not the same physically. David Moore is bigger than shy Smith is, but they do the same kind of thing. And again, Darnold's got all the weapons in the world, right? He's, he's got weapons upon weapons upon weapons. He's got weapons. If weapons go down, right? They've got enough guys (laughs) that they can plug in here that they, they really plugged all the holes. And I, I appreciate that attention to detail to say, Look, we saw what happened when Christian went down last year and and Mike did a fine job. We're not going to be at a spot where, you know, DJ Moore goes down and our season's over, right? So we're going to get top-end wide receivers. We're going to get fill-in wide receivers. We're going to get, you know, free agent wide receivers. We're going to draft wide receivers. We're going to make sure there are targets all over the place. And if they don't all hit, which they won't, doesn't matter. We've got enough of them that they're not going to be holes. So I, I like the approach. I do scratch my head with the Cam Irving and Pat Offline money deals for sure. I don't think either one of those guys are, are worth those contracts, especially in a down cap year. Um, 
but they were, I would say, aggressive with those numbers going out and getting those guys. And I, I don't, I don't know about that. Um, but we'll see how they work. But the defensive additions and especially the sort of depth, I hate to say skill position. We got to come up with something besides skill position because offensive line is very skilled, but the wide receivers, uh, the running backs and the tight end, like Dan Arnold's a sneaky sort of addition at tight end. I think they got a pretty good value, two years, six million. And he showed that he can, especially down in the red zone, he can come up with touchdowns and that, you know, again, Darnold is just looking around going, what, what happened? Where am I? I've got a really good coach, and I've just got targets upon targets upon targets. He's He's got to be pinching himself probably every other day. I truly think that they, they spent all this money. I mean, again, $7 million to Bouye, $8.1 to Morgan Fox. You're throwing four to Daquan. Elfline's getting a three-year deal for $13.5. Uh, Perryman's getting two years for $6 million. You know, Reddick getting the eight million, Irving getting the ten million over two, Dan Arnold getting the six million over two. Uh, they they were able to throw all that money at all these dudes. Where you, individually, you and I are like, I don't know if I do that. I don't know if I do that. But they had so much damn money to burn. They did all those deals, and they're still ninth in available cap space. Yeah, they're just throwing they darts. Had, they had so much money. They're filling holes, and you know, again, not all these guys are going to work out. Not all the draft picks are going to work out. Not all the UDFAs are going to work out. They know all that. And they're like, if one out of every three of these guys that we brought in works out, we're still going to have a really pretty good team. Again, it depends on how Darnold can use all that stuff. But even if he can't, it's not one of those things where like the chicken and the egg thing. Should we draft the quarterback or build the team? Like they've built the team. If Darnold's not the guy, they'll go get another guy next year, right? They'll move up in the draft and they'll pick their quarterback and he will come in whoever that is to all these weapons and they will, they'll just march on. They're not going to skip a beat. So it's a really interesting theory about how to build a roster. Uh, again, they had a ton of cap flexibility. One of the reasons Matt rule took the job, he knew that he, he looked out and said, you know, how, how cash strapped am I going to be or not in, in my first sort of run here? And they were like, Nope, you're going to have financial resources. And he was like, okay, let's go. And, and the best part is next year, they got $55 million available in free agency next year. They're sixth most in the league. Year after that, they got a bunch of dudes coming off the books. They're projected at $150 million available. So yeah. even if Darnold pops off, people are like, why would you trade for Darnold? All of his cheap years are about to be done. They don't give a shit. They got if, all the money they need to sign him if he pops off. If your quarterback works, nobody cares about the money, and they're in a good yeah. spot. This is a We both like the young core of the roster on defense and now starting to be on offense. Do they need some more offensive line help? I think they do. They have Taylor Moton, who's a very good tackle. A couple other guys on the line, but they look, they need they need some other blue chippers on the line, but they have all the wide receivers they need. You know, could they use a, a blue chip top end tight end? You know? Sure. Sure. But yeah. for now they got Dan Arnold and that guy is creative and gets it done. So that's their patch until they can either sign one coming off in free agency or draft one. And they're going to have that flexibility because the nucleus that they're building, that they started last year on defense and that they've filled out through all three phases this year is this is an exciting team. Yeah. They're, they're going to be damn good. If not this year, at least by next year, I think they're going to be really, really good. Uh, moving on to new Orleans, the, pinnacle of stability in the league it seems like when you look at 
you know, how long the power structure has been in place. Like you and I were extolling the virtues of Kansas city last year for keeping all their guys together for nine years. We're going on, you know, multi decades of stability in new Orleans. <laughs> the Saints right are now. like, hold my beer, Casey. It's, we, it's we got insane. coaching stability. It's absolutely insane. Why don't we go through these guys? Mickey Loomis going into year 20 in the exec, uh, or, I mean, right now he's, you know, an executive while also being general manager. But in terms of having the general manager title as part of his title, going into year 20, um, probably the premier capologist, I guess you could say, in the league in terms of how he wiggles out of contract issues. I mean, just time after time after time, some of the deals and the wizardry he was pulling off this year with like Taysom Hill was absurd. And yet by Mickey Loomis, like that's a Tuesday for him. Uh, Sean Payton in year 16 already, if you can believe it, at head coach. Pete Carmichael in year 13 at offensive coordinator. He took over in 2009 there when they won the Super Bowl and never left. He's been the OC ever since. And then Dennis Allen, seems like just yesterday he was the head coach for the Raiders. Now he's in year 7 as DC for the Saints. So again, the stability there at the top is unrivaled. Like, even even New England, you know, Bill's been there the whole time, but they've had other dudes, other coordinators come and go. And, you know, Josh McDaniels was there and then left and then came back. Flores left. Um, Lions, who's the guy that went to the Lions and just came back? Uh, Patricia, you know, like, they, they've had a whole bunch of assistants, you know, come and go over the years. But, like, I've, I've never seen anything like this where you got the guy who's the been there the least amount of time is in his seventh year. Like it's, it's insane stability. Yeah. It's, you don't see it when, when you said Loomis in year 20, right? Two decades as a general manager, like general manager, top job. There's only 32 of them and it's a short lifespan. It's gotten shorter. If anything, as we've moved into the modern NFL, it's what can you do for me now? Can you win? Like there is no more like seven year plan or five year, whatever. If you don't win by year three, your seat's real hot. They're probably going to replace you. To have a guy going into his 20th year with everything they've been through, and you and I talked about this, that look, a Hall of Fame quarterback will give you a lot of job stability. That's pretty cool. But Mickey Loomis has dodged untold numbers of things and made it all work and continues to do that for the Saints front office. It's truly amazing. Sean Payton, you know, had his forced year out, went and coached his son's football team. 16 years. Carmichael's the one that really floors me. Again, successful offensive coordinator, works with Drew Brees, never left. 13 years, right? Never left. And like you said, Dennis Allen is the new guy on the block, and he's been here seven years. There's head coaches who hope to make it to seven years, and he's been doing the same thing. Like you said, he was a head coach. They got him super – I mean, talk about an experienced NFL staff. You look at, like, not just the years with the Saints, but, like, overall NFL years just between those three guys in in the head coaching organization. Like, that's – it's nutty. You know, you look at guys that have a lot of, quote unquote, a lot of longevity in, in the NFL. And again, New Orleans is like, oh, yeah? <laughs> show, yeah. Show me what you got. Oh, yeah? And we wonder why they win so damn much. Like, it, stability is important. Yeah, just look at that franchise. Um, I, I do want to go over the draft here, which got weirdly a lot of flack. 
and I, I especially from Saints fans that were in vehement disagreement with what the team did at the top of the first round. I felt like they made one of my favorite picks in the first round with Peyton Turner at 28th overall. It was hard for me to find people. And again, I did not realize this till after the draft that a lot of people didn't see him as a first round talent. And in fact, saw him as like a late second round talent. I was like jumping for joy when he came off the board in the top 30 and then come to find out that there's a bunch of Saints fans that are pissed about that pick. And it's like, why? Like he's, he's Cam Jordan again. Like he's the same guy to me. So I, I, I love that pick. Didn't realize how unpopular it was till after the draft. But for me, that's like one of my favorite players in this class. You look at his length, you look at his bend, his burst. Like he's a rare, rare profile that can play inside or outside for you. And he's going to learn from a dude who has literally the same skill set, Cam Jordan. I think he's going to end up being, you know, the heir apparent there to Cam, even though it seems like they've kind of drafted two other dudes in the meantime to try to be the heir apparent to Cam. I think Peyton Turner is the actual heir apparent to Cam. Uh, Pete Warner, uh, 28th pick of the second round, another guy that I absolutely adored. Uh, super, super athletic. And, and to get a, a you know, 6'3", 240-pound linebacker, which is big by linebacker standards these days, that can also run like he can, that can blitz like he can, that can cover like he can. Like he, His athletic profile makes him not your normal Mike linebacker. And so for me, when I look at him, it's like that's their new Demario Davis in a couple of years. When Davis is done, that's their guy because they play the exact same way. Aggressive, all out, every single snap, blitzing like a madman, blows up running backs with ease. That's their new Demario Davis, and I love that pick. Uh, Paulson Adebo, phenomenal um, off-cover corner, particularly in zone. Fantastic ball skills. Some of the best ball skills, if not the best ball skills for any DB in this class. Absolutely love Paulson Adebo. The amount of PBUs and interceptions he had in his first couple of years at Stanford was insane, and it's because he's so damn good at tracking the ball. You go watch his highlights. He made a one-hander diving it was like an Odell catch in the back of the end zone for an interception that he had no business catching but he still caught it uh Ian Book this is where things kind of went off the rails a little bit for me <laughs> uh Ian Book in the fourth round not a fourth round pick to me like I, I didn't I didn't see the value there and in fact that was uh that was the one pick where I was like come on guys I I just I disagreed heavily with taking Ian Book not just in the fourth round. I don't know if I would have taken him in the fifth or sixth either. Like, he can run. I, I give you that. He's a good athlete, but he's he's not a starting professional quarterback to me in any way, shape, or form. Uh, Landon Young out of Kentucky, the offensive tackle. Uh, I, mean, I had, like, a day three to priority free agent grade on him, so that's a, probably about the right range. And then uh, Kawan Baker from South Alabama, I did not get to watch because it's South Alabama, and that tape is pretty hard to come by. So not the biggest draft class, but I would say the top three names alone made it a good class to me. I can take or leave everybody else. I could probably leave Ian Book. Uh, but the top three, Peyton Turner, Pete Werner, Paulson Adebo, back-to-back-to-back home runs to me. Yeah, I'm with you. I think we saw this draft the same way. And Saints fans getting mad about Peyton Turner's a little bit weird because the Saints have a type, right? And yeah. with that stability, they're going to pick guys that fit their type. And Peyton Turner, when they made that pick, I was like, 
that fits their type. In fact, they're calling him Marcus Davenport Jr. In amongst the team. That's Peyton Turner's new nickname is Marcus Davenport Jr. Oh, is it? Because, yep. Because he's so similar physically to Marcus Davenport. And it's, it shouldn't, I mean, I understand why it might rankle people or surprise people, especially because Davenport hasn't popped off yet. I don't think it means it won't. That's the thing is I think he's better. <laughs> yeah. Like, and, but it shouldn't surprise Saints that they picked a guy that was just like that. Because guess what? That's the guy they pick. They pick that guy yeah. over and over again. That is their type at that position. Um, Adebo is going to be a great addition to that secondary. Werner, all right, you named the one guy, Demario Davis. Now, there are like, I just looked it up because I had to look it up. I would love to say I had this committed to memory. I did not. Name another Saints linebacker besides Demario Davis. Uh, does Zach Bond count? No. Like, are we counting him as a linebacker? Oh, I'm, I'm not. Uh, I'm counting him as like edge, right? Because again, uh, Demario Davis or quite frankly, Pete Warner, they're going to play inside, right? Man, off the top of my head, I don't think Manti Teo's there anymore. Nope. He was a bear last year. I, I legitimately can't remember who, who played with him. You would not be alone because I couldn't name... Uh, the only guy I recognize is a guy that's more of a uh, special teamer, and I wrote him up as a UDFA, and that was Sutton Smith from Northern Illinois. And I would not have been able to name him had I not looked him up. They've got Marcus Willoughby, Sutton Smith, Shaq Smith, Quentin Polig, Winton McManus, Chase Hansen, Caden Ellis, and Andrew Dow. And if you think any of those guys is going to hold off Pete Werner for really long, they just haven't invested, and they're not alone. NFL teams these days do not prioritize investment at inside linebacker. Typically, they'll get one, and they have their one. Tomorrow Davis, excellent linebacker, right? Very good player. They didn't have anybody else. <laughs> so if Demario Davis goes down, it's it's all those other guys vying for some time, and nobody that's really going to make any offensive coordinator think twice if Demario Davis goes down. So in Pete Werner, you get a guy that is capable of not only succeeding but playing beside him until tomorrow davis is done that does give you a guy that can give an oc pause because he is multifaceted multi-talented he can blitz he can cover he can run he can stuff the gaps as well as anybody especially at that size so they really just needed some talent there great pick for them and then paulson adebo wildly underrated mostly because he sat out great size great anticipation athleticism uh, gets his hand on the ball a lot. You mentioned that it shows up in his tape over and over again, especially out towards the boundary, right? He, he's got to work on breaking routes to the inside. So do a lot of outside corners coming from college. But again, you said it earlier about another player, like anything that was an outside release. Mm, good luck. He is super athletic. He's long. He's got great colleagues in that same secondary. They can show him show him what's going on, like attach that guy to Lattimore's hip and say, all right, do what he does. And he can physically, which is the cool thing. Um, really good picks for them. And I'm with you. As soon as they took book, I was like, oh, well, that's the thing is they do have a type. Like Ian Book is something that they, a player that they see something in that you and I and many other people do not see, which is he is not a professional quarterback in our minds. But again, they believe. And then Landon Young, Again, six-round, mid to late six-round pick, sure. Like, see if he can come in, give you something rotationally tackle. It's a lottery pick. Quan Baker, I didn't watch. So it was really about the top three picks. And then, like, okay, didn't – not one of those drafts where I look at the bottom, you know, three or four rounds ago. Man, they really – 
again, we talked top about the Falcons, like fit, value, like good picks all the way down. Like, I'm like, no, I would not be at all surprised if we looked at the Saints roster in three years and, you know, book Young and Baker. Well, again, can't speak to Baker because I didn't watch him, but any three of those guys weren't on the roster. I would, I would be like, which is weird for a team that had one of the all-time best drafts ever. Uh, was it four years ago, like 2017, the Saints draft? 2017, is, yeah. Is yeah. redonkulous in, in draft lore, right? Every guy hit. Never happens. Every guy hit and played a significant role. Um, so to see a team, again, kind of have half their draft that, again, it's the bottom half. If you want to get a half right, it's the top half. And they did that in our minds. But you look at the bottom half of that draft and go, oh, okay. <laughs> like, I don't I don't see a lot of impact there. I, I looked it up, by the way, and I feel bad for not remembering this. Alex Anzalone was, uh, was next to him. And then they also had Quan Alexander and Craig Robertson. And the depth chart last year. All three are gone now. So makes sense. So they uh, needed also, to invest. <laughs> for the audience, speaking of Alex Anzalone, I want to bring up that 2017 draft because we can't just mention how great it is without reading it off. This was the Saints 2017 draft that, that set the stage for them having a bunch of almost Super Bowls in, in the years after. Marshawn Lattimore, Ryan Ramchick as their two first-round picks. Amazing and amazing. Marcus Williams, uh, one of the better young safeties in the league. Alvin Kamara, who's elite at really whatever role you want to put him in. Alex Anzalone in the third round. Uh, Trey Hendrickson, who just got a bunch of money. uh, And he put up, like, what, 14 and a half sacks, something like that last year? Yeah. And then uh, Al-Kadeen Muhammad, who's probably the only guy who didn't absolutely explode at some point in this draft class. So, again, you're... Hit, 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 hit. Like, they've got at least six starters out of that class at one point, and five of them were putting up Pro Bowl caliber production. Like, that's that's, that's insane for one draft class. All that's all-time. Yeah. All-time draft class. Um, why don't we go into their UDFA hall? Not a whole lot of dudes that I personally really got to watch. You know, it's... You know, Truman State, Lawrence Woods. It's, uh, you know, Carroll College, Alex Hoffman. Like, it's it's a bunch of guys that I didn't really get to see or that just never really got on my radar. I'm trying to think of, like, who's who's worth talking about. You're like maybe... Trill Williams. <laughs> Trill Williams is oh, worth Oh, I didn't even about. notice. Tr- okay, Trill yeah. Williams. He's the right one up, guy that I watched. Right yeah. up at the top. Trill Williams, yeah. the other corner from Syracuse this year, who is was uh, a little bit like Keith Taylor from Washington, right? He was long, spindly, press yeah, corner. Yeah. But yeah. he was better. Both you and I thought he was better than what a lot of people were rating. Matt definitely thought that he should have been drafted. Don't know why he wasn't. Uh, again, goes into a talented DB room. They understand how to coach DBs, especially outside DBs. Troy Williams is an outside cork. He's a guy that could contribute um, and really add to, again, if you'd put him in as a fifth or sixth round pick and taken took a, one of their fifth or sixth round picks and turned him into a UDFA, I would not be at all upset, right? That's your move is <laughs> get the guy you got later earlier and I like it better. Like if they had drafted Trill Williams in the, in the fifth or sixth, I would have been like, cool, fine. I, I don't think he got drafted. Well, A, I agree with you. He should have been drafted. But I think the reason why he didn't get drafted is because if he got out of phase, he couldn't get back in phase. Like, he's just not very fast. 
But if he just gets to use the sideline and beat people up, and I mean, he's like six, six foot, six one, you know, 205 somewhere. Like he's got size to him for a corner. If he's able to just like press dudes into the boundary, he'll survive just fine. Like that kind of corner we've seen work at the NFL level quite frequently. It's just if he guesses wrong and he gets you know, beat on like an attack and slip release and he just gets two seconds or, you know, two steps off pace. He doesn't have the the juice to get those two steps back. We talked about uh, Jason Pinnock. Uh, I can't remember what team drafted what drafted him out of Pittsburgh. But you, you when we watched him together in that pit game, because we were looking at uh, Rashad Weaver and then Pinnock kept showing up. We're like, who the hell is that dude? You know, when he was out of phase, he had the juice to then get back in phase and make plays in the ball, which as a boundary corner, you're going to get beat eventually. You got to be able to recover. And I think recovery was like the one area where I was kind of like, I don't know about with him. And then also on the other side, you know, you're looking at Obi, who recovers like crazy because he's a freak of nature and and having that kind of stark comparison uh, probably hurt him a little bit. But I do agree, like physical press corner when he's working the boundary He's just, he's hard to get around. You know, that physicality is something you can't teach. So again, I I absolutely think he deserved to be drafted on day three and just give him a chance, see what happens. Uh, And uh, I'm excited they picked him up as a UDFA. You know, there's a lot of young talent here and I feel like they've done a really good job of reloading. And honestly, as long as the quarterback situation works itself out, which is a whole different discussion we'll have one day between the, the Jameis and, and the Taysom Hill thing. I don't really consider Ian Book having a shot to win the job here. As long as the quarterback situation works itself out, like you got a bunch of young talent on defense, you got a, an elite offensive line, you still got Michael Thomas. Um, you know, you got a, a tight end that you and I both really like, um, Adam Troutman, and then you got Alvin Kamara, like, Really, the only major question I have about this entire team is quarterback. Everything else, I, I'm really, really, uh, really, really positive about. Yeah, they've done a nice job accumulating pieces, and we talk about this over and over again, that you need a quarterback, and they've had one forever. They've had sort of the ultimate run of quarterback stability, and now they get to go into the great unknown, and, and Sean gets to try and prove his worth again, as and he's done it many times as an NFL head coach, and say, no, I can I can get this team to double digit wins with the quarterbacks I have in the building. And if he can't, they're gonna they're gonna need to solve that. But he thinks he can't because he's he's that guy. But other than that, again, if it's not the case, like I'm not in love with their wide receiver core, we'll talk about that. But you got Alvin Kamara, um, Again, you talk about Troutman as a guy that I like at the tight end. They're they're not super duper deep at wide receiver like some of these other teams you talked about. They are going to have to add some talent there one way or another over the coming years. But it's really about, hey, what's the new quarterback situation? We just haven't seen Saints team without a quarterback in a really long time. So it'll it'll be fascinating to watch from there. And you talked about all the cap magic that Mickey Loomis is able to pull off. They did sign some free agents. Uh, they didn't have a lot of flexibility <laughs> to do that. Hold on. I That's the thing is I, I debated even bringing up the veteran free agents they signed because <laughs> they had no money. And so it's like, are we really going to talk about Tano Passignon? Are we really going to talk about Nick Finette? Like, yeah, they signed them. Hey. I don't want right. even that slander. I'm still holding out hope that he's actually going to be half as good as I thought he was going to be coming out of Ohio State. 
He's 29. I know. I know. I should have given <laughs> up this ghost too is. long ago. I, it's, it's more a bit at this time. Just give it to me. It's a bit. I'm just keeping yeah, it's up like, with It's bit. like me with uh, with Ian Thomas with the Panthers. You, you know, you mentioned it's like, ah, we don't really know what they got at tight end. You know, they're bringing in Tommy Tremble. <laughs> and I'm like, don't you dare take away the hope of Ian Thomas from me. Now, I really, I had it's high hopes for that. I, look, we love Troutman. He's one of the first guys we talked to uh, at the Senior Bowl when we went down there. We got to interview him. Great guy, very talented player. Um, I, w- I was going to say started to come on, and then I looked at his stats. I think he started to to mature as a player and, and sort of understand. The, I mean, he was coming from Dayton, right? He, he was going to have a speed and complexity jump. Um, his production didn't really show it. We'll talk about that in a bit. But the Vanette, like, he's – they gave him $8 million bucks, but over three years. <laughs> So it's not yeah. a huge contract, and this is just his shot to try and make it uh, probably one of the least inspiring free agency halls in all the NFL, uh, I would say, is, again, because they just didn't didn't have any money. So uh, nothing. I mean, P.J. Williams, again, he's <laughs> comes back to, I should say, stays with New Orleans. Nothing, nothing crazy because they just didn't have any capital to go out and, and make a splash here. Yeah, they're just... This was the year where all the chickens came home to roost and they survived it to their credit. They survived it and they kept a good team intact. Um, but it actually hold on. I I don't want to speak out of turn. So let me look at how much cap space they have next year. Or if they're going to have to do this song and dance <laughs> yeah, is all it over this again. year, the chickens are coming home or is it next year? You never can tell with Mickey oh, Loomis, man. can you? There's still 14... Point eight million projected over next year, so they're they're going to have to do it again. Yeah, he's been not as bad, the, not as bad because no. they were like a hundred million over this year. But yeah. like all the work they did, they're still going to have more to do next year. So I don't I don't know what's going to happen. All I know is it's Mickey Loomis. He'll figure it out. If he can clear a hundred million, he can clear fourteen. They'll be <laughs> they'll be fine. Spoken, spoken like a true NFL watcher. Oh yeah, hundred million, no problem. Fourteen. That's a you said that's a Tuesday. That's like a Tuesday from three to three fifteen on his calendar. I I used to think the cap was real, and then I really paid attention to what the Saints do. I was like, this is all bullshit. It's Fugazi. It's nothing. It's just in the wind. (laughs) It's not nothing. They've still got a lot of work to do, and they had to get rid of a lot of uh, cap space kept contracts it means good players and we're gonna see that sort of bottom half of the draft in udfa come into play in a different way for new orleans because that's what they're they're gonna need those guys to hit those cheaper pieces of talent more than anything because again they're not gonna have a we talked about all the cash that carolina has right to just throw at darts and add fill holes and and you know these are guys they play twice a year in their division they're not gonna have that they don't have the cash they're gonna need to grab you know, cheap labor from a bunch of different sources and, you know, not, not loving the bottom of their draft from that component, from that lens. But uh, we'll see. They, again, Mickey Loomis has survived for two decades. If he can find another quarterback, if, if one of the two they have on the roster doesn't work out, he'll, he'll be just fine. He'll just, he'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, And let's close it out with the reigning champions the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, probably the favorites to repeat as champions this year because they really didn't figure it out until like week 12 last year. And then they they just absolutely steamrolled the league all the way to the Super Bowl. Now, year two with Tom Brady, 
uh, working together with Bruce Arians. It kind of feels like uh, the the idea around Tampa this year is like, okay, well, now we figured it out. Now we can play for real. And it's like, that wasn't for real last year. You won the damn Super Bowl. Yeah. And and the way that, you know, you're seeing reports out of camp, it's like this team is sharper than they ever looked before. Like no Super Bowl hangover. Tom, the drill sergeant, has everybody locked in. You know, they, they brought back all the starters. They brought back all the coaches. Like the, everybody seems dialed in because they know that they have a chance at building a dynasty here. And uh, I, I don't think this is going to be your normal, uh, you know, Super Bowl hangover type situation. Like this is a team that, despite the last game they playing, uh, last game they played, winning a world championship, they're still out for blood. And maybe that's the Tom Brady effect or, or whatever you want to call it. But they're, they, they are not asleep at the wheel. They are back, and they are probably better than ever. And that is a terrifying thought. Uh, why don't I go through the front office review? You got Jason Light going into year eight, believe it or not, already. I, I remember when he was a young general manager and, you know, talking about having a, uh, you know, an interview with, with Jameis Winston before the draft and how excited he was to, to get this quarterback that he was going to be there for the next 10 to 15 years. And funny how things change. Uh, Bruce Arians, year three. And then Harold Goodwin, uh, assistant head coach, Byron Lefwich, and Todd Bowles at D.C. also in year three. So, again, having uh, continuity at staff for all, for a, a good number of years now and nobody leaving and it, the, the power structure being intact in addition to the veteran leadership and, and the stability you get from a guy like Tom Brady. Even though this group has been together far less than the Saints group, I still feel like they have the same level of what's the term being on the same page if that's a way to put it like th- this is this is a staff that is absolutely dialed in and locked in with their franchise quarterback and locked in with their general manager and uh again the stability at the top of the organization is really what builds championships and uh, i think you can compare what's going on in Tampa and what's going on in Houston you look at a stable leadership core versus a very unstable leadership core and the effect it has on a franchise. And uh, I, I think the differences are apparent. This is Arians for me. Like Jason Light played his role and the, and the two of them got together and they said at the, at the, you know, trophy celebration, we're bringing everybody back. But look, they were drinking. We all say things when we're drinking and general managers say things in the off season that don't come true. They brought everybody back. Yeah. Everybody. You never see that. There are always defections from a Super Bowl team, whether it comes from the coaching staff, the players, the stars, the young players who are up for that second contract. There are always defections from a Super Bowl team, and it's it's just the stars aligning and a low cap year and this culture that Arians has created. And I just want to take a second and shout out Bruce Arians for exactly that, for setting a tone the tone, his tone, and creating opportunities for coaches of color, for female coaches, for a truly equal opportunity environment where if you're good at your job, you're not only going to get a shot, you're going to get exposure, you're going to get talked up as being a a true contributing part. Everybody feels like their ideas are being heard. That all comes from Bruce Arians, right? And he can be 
the sort of firebrand leader, <laughs> you know, this just this week, right? Somebody said, hey, you know, Bruce, are you going to bring in an expert to talk to your players about COVID? He said, no, I am the damn expert, <laughs> right? <laughs> get the shot. You want to play the games? Get the shot, right? I, I We don't need an expert. I got that, right? He's no nonsense, but he can do that because he creates this culture where everybody pulls together. You said on the same page. Everybody loves Arian's way of doing this, and they all want to work for it. You talked about the players wanting to work for it and be hungry. Like, you're hearing players, uh, Shaq Barrett said, forget last year, like, I had a good year. I'm going to kill people this year. I am, like, I am not done. I am just getting started because I know what's here. I know what's assembled in front of me, and I want to take advantage. And that's contagious throughout the organization, the coaches, the players, even in talent acquisition, if they say we're bringing everybody back and they literally bring every single guy back, it's insane. It's it never yeah. happens. And like you said, they didn't warm up till midway through the season. If you go back and look at the press clippings from the first third of the season, it was, oh, has Tom really lost it? You know, the Arians offense doesn't fit him. And he's missing a lot of throws, whisper, 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 right? There was a lot of stuff. And it, you know, wasn't terribly misplaced. They were not firing on all cylinders. Then there was the, oh, he's pushing really hard to add Antonio Brown. It's going to be a distraction. They have other receivers. Who are like there was a lot of sort of rocky storylines, like through week six, even in week eight. And then they started to clip. And then, like you said, took three or four weeks to get dialed. And then Brady started killing people like yeah. I remember you and I sitting looking watching like week eight, week nine, week ten, and it's like, oh my God, he is cutting people apart. He's throwing darts. There's no way at his age he should be throwing that ball into that window. And he started doing it consistently. And then it was like, uh oh. <laughs> if he stays healthy, like he's locked in. And it's it's a culture that's created. They've got this mix of quarterback and arians is willing to cede the right things to brady brady is willing to follow the right things from arians and he just creates this culture that people want to march behind because not only do you say we're gonna bring everybody back those players are free to go anywhere if they don't like the system they'll go someplace else and get more money that's what a super bowl hangover is usually made from they all chose every single one of them down the line was like nope see what's going on here. I want a piece. I want to be back. And that can't be underrated. And I, I, for one, if you can't tell, love Bruce Arians' leadership style. It kills me that he could have been the Bears coach. And they were like, oh, you're going to have to keep this DC. And he was like, screw you. I picked my staff. And they were like, well, we don't want you then. And I was like, Arr. Was it Fangio? Fangio uh, was the breaking point? No, it was... Um, uh, uh, the guy that went to Dallas, whose face I can see right now, uh, Dallas, Dallas defensive line coach. Uh, come on, I can see his face. This oh, Marinelli? Yes, Rod Marinelli. Going to have to keep Marinelli. And he was like, no, I pick my staff. Interesting. You, don't, you don't tell me. <laughs> I, will, I don't blame him. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's rare to have a, a coach come in and – not really have like the last one I can remember is Frank Reich where, you know, they were making staff hires from what Josh McDaniels wanted. And then, yeah, that was, that was super odd. Reich's situation was really, really weird, but no, I just, I love Arians and Arians does things that 
are really cool. Uh, there's a gathering every year at the combine of um, just uh, female roles involved in the NFL, and it's agents and folks that work for teams and folks who work in sports media. They have kind of women's gathering of women in the NFL at a bar, and Arians walked in and just went up to the bartender and said, "I got it." Like put on my card mm-hmm. and walked out. Like he didn't make it about himself, and they went to pay at the end of the night, and he paid for the entire night. And he just does stuff like that. Not again to stand up on the bar and say, "Okay, y'all need to pay attention to me. I'm the top guy, and I'm I'm going to make this happen for you." He just walks in and says, "You know, these gals work really hard to get where they got. I'm going to pay for their drinks tonight," and walks out. Like that that kind of backing of representation mattering is and giving people walking the talk right not just saying hey i think it matters but doing things making those internships and then turning those into actual coaching positions on your staff and saying if you're good enough you can come coach here i don't care what you look like i don't care where you're from go for it yeah right that true kind of equal opportunity is not a thing you see in the nfl and arians is like i'm doing it because like he he's truly ascended to the kind of idgaf form oh right? yeah no he's he's, he's got just that like, old man energy he doesn't yeah. give a shit he's like i don't care i'm just doing it the way i want to do it because i think it's right and it's it's working like like you said they steamrolled the league for the last half of the season they went to the super bowl and they won it and now they bring everybody back and they look hungry like that is a that is the rubber stamp sort of ironclad endorsement of this works right this works you can win at the highest level you can keep everybody you can have everybody engaged uh, you know we're going to see an arian's coaching tree that lasts 15 or 20 years that goes all over the league from all these coaches that he's got on his staff. And not only did they bring everybody back, by the way, but they added some really good players in the draft as well. There was uh, a couple a couple hiccups along the way, I would say, but overall I still felt very positive about their class. I'll kind of go through it one by one. Uh, Joe Tryon from Washington, kind of a do-it-all edge, extremely strong at the point of attack can play with his hand in the dirt. He can stand up. Not necessarily somebody I want to drop into coverage a whole bunch, and he might be asked to do that a little bit in this system, but overall I trust Todd Bowles to not really put him in position to fail. I think he's really going to have him more going forward than going backwards because Todd Bowles usually fits his calls around who he has on the field. Uh, But again, really, really good against the run. Very versatile pass rusher. One of the only guys that I saw that could really actually push Penny Sewell backwards. Like, that's the kind of power we're talking about here. I love Joe Tryon. Absolutely love that pick. Uh, Kyle Trask, didn't love that pick. Kind of, you know, raging Ian Book energy there where it's like, did you have to take him that high? It's just not very mobile. I know there's reports that he lost weight and looks a little bit more spry than he did at Florida, but... He's still, I can't imagine that it made that big of a difference. He's still not going to be mobile by modern standards. Like he just, at Florida, he just flat out couldn't move. Now maybe he might be able to move a little bit, but still not enough to the point where he's going to be able to outrun, you know, Brian Burns. He's not going to be able to, you know, be able to elude Hassan Reddick in the open field. Like it's, it's a different kind of mobility that I think is required in the modern day and age where you have a whole bunch of freaks of nature in the front seven, it's, it's not the same game anymore. You got to be able to move. 
I don't necessarily think he has the mobility to survive in today's NFL, but I guess we'll see. Uh, Robert Hainsey was a pick I really liked out of Notre Dame. He played tackle there. I'm assuming they're going to kick him into guard or potentially at center as like a backup center. Might just be a swing guard as a rookie because, again, their offensive line is loaded. It's the best line in the league, arguably. Uh, but again, if, if Robert Hainsey's your swing guard and or backup center, you're doing something right because I think he could be really, really successful there. Had a lot of good reps at the Senior Bowl playing center, by the way. Uh, Jalen Darden, you know, this was a pick I was a little bit torn on because it was in the fourth round, so it's not like he was a reach for me, but I felt like he was a little bit of a one-dimensional receiver when I watched him on tape. Like, all of his best plays were run a hitch, make a dude miss, run a hitch, make a dude miss. Like there was a couple, a couple deep shots here and there, but really I, I saw him as more of a yak threat than a, you know, win with route running against a press corner and get open on third and seven kind of threat. So I don't necessarily see him as like a versatile receiver that's going to push any of these guys for snaps. If anything, I think, you know, maybe getting him involved as a return man early would be just the way to get him on the field. Cause I, again, in terms of actual receiver skills, I think he's very far away from from getting significant snaps in that role. As a return man, though, I can see it. Uh, K.J. Britt, uh, linebacker out of Auburn, probably a special teamer for me. I don't think he's, like again, compared to the guys they have playing now, he's nowhere near Devin White. He's nowhere near Levante David. Like If that's the standard for linebacker play, starting linebacker play in the NFL, that dude's a special teamer. Uh, and then Chris Wilcox from BYU. I don't know if he'll make the roster. Uh, and then Grant Stewart is interesting because he's got tremendous instincts. Um, he's got range. Size is an issue. Again, I'm thinking probably special teamer for that reason. Like, you know, Levante Davis is not the biggest dude in the world either, but he can still get off blocks pretty well. I don't know about Grant Stewart doing that. But again, I love his instincts. Like, he's a really, really smart player. He's got range. I just, in terms of being able to uh, survive <laughs> an offensive lineman in space, I don't know if he can quite do that. So, uh, overall, you know, the uh, Joe Tryon pick was tremendous. The Robert Hainsey pick was tremendous. The, the Darden pick may or may not work, depending on what they're asking him to do. And then you got some special teams players and Kyle Trask. Uh, not not like the best draft uh, in this division, certainly, but I don't really think it's like a bottom tier draft either. Like this is this is one where it's like it's either average or slightly above average, depending on how well Joe Tryon works out. Yeah, I like their draft. I really like Joe Tryon. I think you put him right behind Shaq Barrett and say, do what this guy does. I think he's even stronger than Barrett. Uh, he used his year off. He did sit out last year to really work on his body and pictures he put out before the draft. Like he added muscle. He added definition. He looks like he's been in a pro, you know, nutrition and conditioning routine for a year. That's a great head start for a guy heading into the NFL where there's always an adjustment gap. He's bigger than you think he is like 265 big, tall dude. He's going to be a player. They're going to find a way, especially with their defensive coordinator. They're going to find a way to have Joe Tryon have impact, and it will be this year. And that's what you want out of a first-round pick. I don't think they're going to have to work super hard. They're just, again, going to have to put him in decent spots and not put him in spots 
like dropping into pass coverage, but they don't do that with Shaq Barrett a ton either. So again, I really think you link this guy at Shaq Barrett's hip, say, look, when Shaq comes out, you're going in, you're going to try him to do the same thing. If you can get anywhere near to his level, given the success he's had, Joe Tryon's going to be a very good player. Kyle Trask, uh, Kyle Trask was, uh, was a guy that created a lot of friction in draft circles, uh, depending on your lens when when you looked at him. If you were looking at numbers and production, you really liked Kyle Trask. If you were looking at his translation to the modern NFL, you weren't wild about it because he is heavy-footed. That's the only way to put it. It's not that <laughs> so that's a is, way to phrase it. <laughs> he is heavy-footed. He yeah. looks that way. It's not like, oh, he's faster than he looks. He's not. He's as fast as he looks, and he looks slow. Um, that's going to be a death knell. We've seen guys. Um, Josh Rosen is a guy who I really liked, who did not have great mobility. He had better mobility than Kyle Trask, but he did not have great mobility. And it's, so far, it's been his death knell in the league. He has not been able to hook on because he just can't get out of the way. And the thing that got me about Kyle Trask's tape is you dug in deeper. It wasn't Trask making most of the plays. It was Pitts. It was Kadarius Tony. It was Trayvon Grimes. They were bailing him out, grabbing a lot of yak with a huge catch radius, their insane speed and strength. Like that is a very talented wide receiving core. And Pitts was just the guy getting it in their area and they were making the rest happen. Now you can say what you want about that, but as a second round pick, and I realize there's a premium placed on quarterbacks, I wasn't wild about it. Um, again, they see something, maybe they think they can quicken him up a little bit. Brady is you know, notoriously not the fleetest of foot, but it has gotten more spry. If you notice the changes that Brady's made in his body over his career, he's lighter now than he ever has been. He looks much thinner, and he moves around a little bit better. He's still not spry. But maybe they think they could do something with Kyle Trask, but Kyle Trask has got to get all the other stuff that Brady has on just on lock, and Kyle Trask isn't there either. So it felt like a reach to me. Hainsey is a great pick. Guard center versatility. Yes, he played tackle at Notre Dame. I really think he can be a very solid guard. That's what I had in my notes. Played some center at the Senior Bowl. Looked pretty good doing it. That's great versatility for a very talented offensive line. Jalen Darden I like a little bit more than you because he's is one of those guys that's not super route detailed, um, has work to do there, but he is electric with the ball in his hands, and he has an uncanny knack for making people miss. There are <laughs> too many times in his tape where you say, there's three guys, they all have angle, there's no way that little guy is going to... He scored. Okay. <laughs> and then you go back and it happens twice in the same game. You're like, nope, there's three guys coming in. They're all ahead of him and there's a sideline. There's no, he did it again. Right. <laughs> and it's not, it's not a one-off. It happens all the time. He's just one of those guys. It's extremely elusive. And yes, special teams is going to be his ticket. We were talking about this before the show. The roster in Tampa is ridiculous. Wide receiver, tight end, running back all loaded <laughs> like if you look at their depth for those three positions and then you look at the saints depth for those three positions it is night and day like jalen darden if he's great is the fifth wide receiver for the buccaneers probably more likely the sixth 
Yeah. They have three tight ends that could start on almost any NFL team. Gronkowski starts on any NFL team. Uh, O.J. Howard, if he stays healthy, could start on almost any. And we've seen what Cameron well, does. Well, Gronk wouldn't start on, like, Niners. He wouldn't start on okay, almost na- any NFL. I was going to say, name three, maybe four teams in the NFL that guy wouldn't start on, right? Ra- I'm just going to, just for Go the ahead. sake of the exercise. Raiders and Raiders, Chiefs. Raiders, Chiefs, Niners. Yep. Uh, I don't think it'd start over Mark Andrews. I was going to say, Ravens is my next, and then it gets dicey. I think probably just on upside, Pitts would start over him. Sure, but we haven't seen Pitts play. I would agree with you. But you know, you... again, we're getting to, we're getting to five. I mean, would you if he was in New England? Would he start over Hunter Henry? Yeah, because Hunter Henry got injured a couple days ago. <laughs> he did again. Again, no, it doesn't look bad. He limped off. He gave the thumbs up. He was walking around with his ankle tape. But I was like, come on. Like, I really want to see Hunter Hunter Henry healthy. Wow, that was harder to say than I thought. But, no, <laughs> look, Gronkowski's great. O.J. Howard, if he stays healthy, would start. And we've seen Cameron Brake be really effective. Is he a starter at that level? No, but you the three guys on one team that could all, you know, be at least the number two tight end on any team in the league. They're three deep. Running back, they're four or five deep. It's ridiculous. Wide receiver, we're talking about six deep with a guy they drafted in the fourth round. They're just loaded at every spot. Not everybody's going to make this team, and they're going to they're going to just shed some talented guys to the practice squad because they can with the rules. But I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised at all if some teams poach off their practice squad because all three of those position groups are just stacked on the bucks it's crazy so kj Britt, solid guy but he's he's a thumper and i have you know he's got two great guys to learn from but he doesn't have the physical skills of either one of them uh and then grant stewart is is kind of the jalen darden of defense right he just gets to the right place and makes plays i'd watched him early before he went to the senior bowl he did go to the senior bowl and then my second watch of peyton turner i was like man grant stewart makes more plays Right. He just keeps showing up and being in the right spot. And athletically, you'd think, I oh, probably shouldn't be there. It doesn't matter. He's got the knack. And so I can see him starting off on special teams, but working into the rotation as a rotational linebacker because he is a he's a valuable defender. And I'm sure that their staff at the senior bowl went, Okay, if he's still hanging around, we've got a pick left. We're gonna grab Grant Stewart. He he plays like we want a middle linebacker to play. I know he's just let me let me, let me look up what he measured in it because I'm genuinely curious. No, his measurements are not great, but he's one of those he's guys. Five, he's five eleven, two twenty five. I know. And you look at Jalen Darden, and his measurements aren't great either. But he he's makes plays. So small. And I know. But I went back. I'm telling you, right before the draft, like ten days before the draft, I went back. I was watching Peyton Turner's film, and I was like. I don't remember Stewart making this many plays on my first pass through. Maybe I just wasn't paying attention because I hadn't watched Turner. I was excited about it. On the second one, I pretty much knew what I was getting with Turner and I could kind of turn my eyes to the other points of the defense. And I'll be damned if Stewart didn't make way more plays than I remembered because I'd kind of written him off. Same thing. I was like, small, it's not super fast. Uh, you know, okay. He's, you know, he's one of those guys that down the board, you take a shot on, which is exactly what they did. 
But in watching it, I was like, man, you talked about his instincts, right? And that's what gets players who are not imposing physically to the place where they make plays. We've seen, I, I think about Kevin Byard, the safety for Tennessee, right? Not His measurements will not blow you away. Guy makes a ton of plays because he's got good instincts. And Stewart is the same way. Yeah, I, I don't deny it. And again, it's a seventh-round pick. You know, if it works, even round, as a special like, teamer, who cares? Great. You know? Yeah. Uh, at UDFA, honestly, really, I mean, it's a, it's a loaded roster, so most of these guys kind of have no shot to really get on the depth chart anyway. Uh, but the one that really stuck out to me where I'm like, that dude might make the final 53 is Sedarius Hutcherson from, <laughs> Hutcherson, excuse me, from South Carolina. Absolutely freak of nature. I'm talking 321 pounds, still jumping, uh, still jumping 32 inches in the vert, putting up like 35 reps. And that play strength shows up on tape. Like when he, when he drives people off the ball, it's really special. And he did it against really the who's who of SEC talent. I mean, I'm talking Alabama. Uh, I mean, he did it against Clemson. Like he played against everybody. He played against all the best teams in the country during his career. And he was just an animal. And I, I he played tackle and guard uh, at various points. I projected more at guard in the NFL. Just when you look at his body type, like it's like that's not a tackle, that's a guard. Like he's he's just really round, but I'm not saying he's he's unathletic. He's very he's athletic. Huge. But he just he carries a lot of weight. And I'm like, that's a guard. Yeah, he was on a ball clip, so just like you said, freak, right? Bruce Feldman's classic freak list. Like, Sidarius Hutcherson is one of those guys. You just don't see people that big move that fast, use that kind of power. He kind of slipped under the radar. Not that many people. It's not a guy that nobody talked about, but there were not very many people talking about him. One of the reasons we put him on the Ball of Clay episode. Um, again, they have a very talented offensive line. I wouldn't doubt if he ends up on the practice squad, uh, but... I do think this is a guy that in a couple of years could be starting um, for the Bucks or their most valuable sort of swing interior offensive lineman. Um, the other guy I'll mention is Jose Borgales, the kicker from Miami. He had a lot of buzz in the last couple of years as one of the top kickers, probably going to be one of the top kickers in the class. You know, did the Bucks need a kicker? Well, not really, but you bring in a camp leg, you never know. Um, and certainly has a lot of leg talent. Um, uh, Translation for kickers to the pros is a, is a rocky road, so no guarantees there. <laughs> yeah. But perfect, perfect guy to take a shot on in UDFA, right? A, a heralded special teamer, maybe can come in and show you something. You put him on your list, say, you know, keep kicking, stay healthy, and maybe if your kicker goes down, you had him in camp. He's familiar with your long snapper and your holder. Uh, that's a that's an advantage. Uh, we'll see. No no guarantees, but Hutcherson is. Hutcherson's a dude, and they have a very strong offensive line, uh, not only in the players they have there, but in the way that they play together in Tampa Bay. And if he can sort of integrate himself into that, um, he's got all the physical skill in the world to blow just about anybody, even NFL talent, off the ball. He's a big, big dude. Uh, in terms of veteran free agent additions, I mean, just when you look at, like, Guys, they brought in from other teams. It's Antonio Hamilton. It's it's Joe Jones. It's Raven Green. It's nobody really recognizable, I would say, to the average fan. But when you look at their retentions list, like just guys that were theirs that they got to keep, 
that's where it's a, a, a star-studded cast. It's Shaq Barrett, it's Nadama Kinsu, it's Rakeem Nunez Roches, who's a very underrated player, uh, Steve McClendon, Kevin Minter as your fourth linebacker is Kevin Minter. That's a pretty damn good player. Um, you know, Blaine Gabbert, they were able to retain. Leonard Fournette, they brought back on a one-year deal. Uh, Gio Bernard is one they brought in. Another one, I forgot to mention him from, from outside the organization, but he's really the only notable one. Um, and then they brought back Gronk, and they brought back Antonio Brown. I mean, just in that one group, that's, what, three Hall of Famers that they were able to retain? And then Shaq Barrett, who's on his way to probably being an all-decade type player and probably end up in the Ring of Honor himself, like... The amount of free agent talent that they were able to keep in-house. I know we mentioned it at the top. I've I've just never seen anything like this before. I never have. No, it's... Again, people say, oh, we're going to bring you all back, right? That's what you say at the championship celebration. And then they did it. Like, down the line, every single guy got brought back. None of the coaches left. It It's staggering. Uh, and... Again, this was a well-oiled machine by the time they hit the playoffs. They dismantled the Chiefs, right? And the Chiefs, yes, they had offensive line issues, but they still had Pat Mahomes. They made Pat Mahomes, who was limping around on a bad toe, I get it, look mortal. And that's a thing. And it wasn't really, it never felt like super in question, (laughs) right? No, yeah, that game, like, well, there were, there was a couple plays every now and then where you're like, oh, here it comes. Here's the run. The and patented then, Mahomes and... deal. And it, <laughs> they just kept their thumb on their head, kept yeah. their boot on their neck, whatever you want to say. Like, they won that game. It wasn't like, oh, well, they got a couple of breaks. Like, they flat out won that game. It was a very impressive performance, and it was the whole way down the stretch for the last, certainly third of the season was just like, you probably weren't beating the Bucks. They They were... They had it firing on all cylinders. The idea that they brought everybody back, they had a good solid draft glass, and they look hungry is not good news for their foes in the NFC South. No, it's this is this is one of those years where you know there's always the story after somebody wins the Super Bowl, it's like, oh, can they repeat and everything like that? This is one of those years where it's like not just yes, they can repeat, but it's more like, yeah, I expect them to repeat find the hole you can't like this is not the same thing as like the chiefs uh you know when they were coming back in 2020 um where it's like okay yeah they got pat mahomes they got andy reed but like there were very clear roster holes that they had to address and the depth was deceptively thin and then they got hit by injuries and that lack of depth really kind of reared its ugly head throughout the season this Tampa roster is much different. Not only do they not have any holes, they have depth at every spot. Like, short of Tom Brady blowing out a knee, knock on wood, I can't think of any team, any team in the NFL, that I would bet my life savings on to win other than Tampa Bay. Like, it's it's unbelievable how stacked they are. I, I can't remember any defending champion being this... Um, unassailable is that the right word for it I, I i don't know it i mean if certainly brady has to stay healthy but they were talking up gabbert right unprompted they were talking up gabbert the other day and i i'm not a huge blaine gabbert fan but they were like blaine 
playing really well for us right now. Now, am I saying Blaine Gabbard is anywhere near on the same plane, uh, planet as Tom Brady? I'm not. <laughs> Don't put that on me. But like that, I think, is the weakest link. And they were talking that up independently like a week ago saying, no, Blaine, we wanted to bring Blaine back. It wasn't that there was nobody else. Like he's playing really well for us. Like he's a guy that, again, had a rough pro debut. <laughs> was a highly drafted quarterback and never really lived up to that status. And now, again, Arians has been known as a quarterback whisperer. Byron Leftwich, again, former pro quarterback, now the OC, understands these guys and says, hey, this is what you need to do to be a successful quarterback. And according to them, they like what Blaine Gabbard's given them as a backup quarterback. Again, as a backup quarterback. So maybe even that, with all this depth, wouldn't be enough to just automatically derail them you know sort of dismiss them out of hand but the depth when you go through there again going through the entire roster is the is the value of doing these shows and i was staggered we were looking for folks for our next section um you know values and it was like the only reason i can't pick anybody out of here is because they got there's only one football they got to spread this around. They have five <laughs> running backs, they have six wide receivers. They have three tight ends. There's other teams where I'm like, they don't even really have one tight end. And here I'm like, nope, they got three tight ends. And tight ends are not going to be the focus of this offense because they have four legitimately really good wide receivers, right? And you just don't see that kind of depth on other teams. No, it's it's a rare, rare team. And I'm excited to get to watch him a couple times live this coming season. I've never seen Tom Brady live, but um, I, I'm i stoked to watch this team. There's a reason why tickets are unbelievably expensive, because uh, this this has the, the feeling, and again, I don't want to put the whole like dream team curse on them, like what happened with the Eagles a decade ago, but I mean, damn, <laughs> this this feels like a special team and a special season. And I think I think we're going to witness something amazing this year. I really, really do. Uh, why don't we get into our best NFC South players for Underdog Fantasy, our title sponsor, which is so graciously sponsored us all throughout the summer. Uh, if you don't know Underdog Fantasy, they're the premier best ball uh, fantasy outlet anywhere. And best ball, I think, is is kind of like the next big thing in in fantasy. You know, for a while it was all about daily, and but. Um, but really best ball, I think for season long players and not somebody who just wants to be in it for one week, but somebody who wants to be in it for a whole season and wants to be rewarded for doing all the off season research and having a good draft. Like best ball is honestly for players like me is the perfect format because I do a lot of off season research and I really pride myself on having good drafts rather than having to rely on, you know, waiver wires and trades and everything like that. Like I, I want to be able to dominate in August and then have the fruits of my labor work for me all the way into December. That's what Best Ball allows you to do. Again, it doesn't uh, it doesn't rely on you having to you know make correct lineup decisions in any given week. Just whoever on your team has the best points any given week, you're going to get credit for those points. You don't get screwed over by injuries. You don't get screwed over, screwed over by game script. Just if you draft good players, you get credit. And so with Best Ball format in mind. EJ and I both have three players that we're going to go through uh, in the NFC South that we are really going to be prioritizing in this format. 
Uh, I'll go first. For me, it's Chris Godwin, Kyle Pitts, and Leonard Fournette. Uh, I've got two bucks. EJ has none, spoiler alert. Uh, but for me, again, because I think the Bucks are going to be such a dominant team, I was like, I know there's only one football, but who do I think is going to get that football the most? A, I think it's going to be Chris Godwin, who's their primary slot receiver. And in that offense with that quarterback, Tom Brady in particular, he loves working the slot. He loves working the middle of the field. Um, against zone coverages, he's really all about manipulating leverage and relying on a receiver that has the same kind of um, ability to re-leverage as him and just get to the right place at the right time. That's why, you know, Wes Welker had a bunch of catches and Julian Edelman, like Chris Godwin is that kind of uh, reliable slot safety blanket for him, plus so much more because he's also a deep threat. He's also a red zone threat. He's the clear primary option on that offense to me. And even though it is a, a crowded receiver room, I think in any given week, he's still the best bet to put up an absolutely monstrous amount of points. Uh, and then I have Kyle Pitts with Atlanta, who now that Julio's gone, even though Calvin Ridley is going to take over the true number one role, uh, Pitts is still going to have an absolutely massive role in this offense, especially in the red zone. Like, I, I think any time that he's on the field, he's a matchup nightmare. It doesn't matter if he's going against corners, linebackers, safeties, doesn't really matter. You know, if Calvin is just getting like true, they call it one double, you know, it's like we're playing man coverage across the board and we're just picking out a number, uh, one double jersey numbers, the coverage call. Like anytime they get that kind of call, it's going on Calvin Ridley. It's not going on Kyle Pitts, which means Kyle Pitts is going to get a lot of one-on-ones, which means Kyle Pitts is going to get a lot of catches because there's very few people on planet Earth that I think can actually cover him. And even if he is covered, again, his catch radius is so big that it doesn't really matter. Matt Ryan can just throw it up into the bleachers and he's going to go get it. So I'm a big fan of Kyle Pitts. Even if he doesn't uh, get as many catches as Ridley or even as Russell Russell Gage, he's still going to get a lot of touchdowns, and touchdowns are very, very valuable in this kind of format. Uh, and then Leonard Fournette, also with the Bucks. I expect the Bucks to be in the lead quite frequently, which means the second half of most games is going to be Leonard Fournette time. I think he's going to grind teams to dust. And he also happens to be the best receiving back on the team as well. So the screen game is going to run through him. Uh, you know, anytime, you know, he's got running back, like Tom famously loves throwing to running backs on third down, particularly on option routes. That's Leonard Fournette's job. Everybody else on that depth chart, other than Gio Bernard, is not really a great receiving back, whereas Leonard actually does have receiving ability. And I think he's also a better runner than Gio, which means he's going to far outpace Gio in snaps. So I think he's probably the best bet out of anybody in that backfield to get significant starting running back quality points. So those are my three guys. Chris Godwin, the number one receiver in Tampa. Kyle Pitts, the number one touchdown threat in Atlanta. And Leonard Fournette, the guys who uh, who's just going to get an absolute metric shit ton of second half points every single week this year. <laughs> I went for the sort of mid layer. You, you know, Chris Godwin, yes, best receiver on the Bucks, and the straw that stirs their drink. Quite frankly, when he was out, uh, their offense didn't perform in the same way, and he was really the guy they had to get going. When he got going, so goes the rest of the Bucks offense. Yes, Evans is awesome. Godwin's amazing. Kyle Pitts, yeah, he's gonna catch everything. It doesn't really matter what you put <laughs> on him. Fournette. Eh. I might argue with you on Fournette, and it is a crowded running back room. They've got some talented other running backs. Uh, not sure he's the best 
pass receiving threat in their backfield, but I understand the whole second half grind time, give carries to Leonard Fournette rationale. I went with DJ Moore, Carolina, over a thousand yards each of the past three years with pretty questionable quarterback play. Guys like Kyle Al thrown to him, Teddy Bridgewater. Uh, you know, is he even the sort of number one receiver on his team? No, I don't think he is. Is he going to get you points? He absolutely is going to get you points. And a, a guy I think that Sam Darnold will come to love very quickly because he can win in a multitude of ways. Um, and with Russell Gage, this is a no-brainer for me because with Julio out of town, Russell Gage was a very good number three. He moves into that number two role pretty much automatically. Again, number two wide receiver, probably number three threat overall in the offense with Pitts being the number two pretty much automatically behind Calvin Ridley. Doesn't mean he's not going to get a lot of catches. Matt Ryan's already really familiar with him, threw to him last year. He's just going to have more targets, more chances. So I think Russell Gage is a really good play, probably a bit undervalued too. People aren't going to be leaping at Russell Gage. Certainly his sort of adoption rate's gone up since Julio, the Julio trade came down. Still might be able to get him if you draft, especially if your league mates aren't paying attention. Grab Russell Gage. He's going to get you points. And then Adam Troutman is my controversial pick uh, in New Orleans. Their lead tight end, and it's not really even close, in terms of he's going to get the most opportunities. Look, tight ends are not necessarily great scoring threats, but this is an offense that has been operated by Drew Brees forever. New quarterbacks love tight ends as safety blankets. Adam Troutman is developing. He's catching up to speed. There's really nobody else in the tight end room. And quite frankly, the wide receiver core is not awe-inspiring. This is not the Bucks wide receiver core where they're four, five, six deep. They're like one deep for sure, possibly two deep. And then you really are looking at a guy like Troutman as possibly the third best option on that team for receiving if you're not counting Alvin Kamara. If you're counting Kamara, he's fourth. Okay, that's fine. With a new quarterback, I'll take the fourth best receiving option who is athletic and can make moves with the ball in his hands big enough to get red zone targets as well. He's going to pick you up some points. Is he going to be the big scoring threat? No, but he is the clear number one in a non-crowded room. It's kind of the opposite of the Buck situation. So I like Troutman, even though his production was extremely low last year. That means you can pick him late, most likely. He's a tight end, didn't have a ton yeah. of production. People are going to be like, Adam Troutman, go ahead, have him in the you know double-digit round of your choice. Go ahead, take him. Best ball is probably going to get you some points. In 12-man leagues, I saw him in in the 18th round, and I took him a couple times. So he's there, and he will pretty much always be there. Because, honestly, even among people that are looking for tight end sleepers, Troutman's probably at the bottom of the list for most people because they didn't get to see him at Dayton. And they, you know, people like this dude from Dayton, who the fuck is that? Like, no, he's, <laughs> he's good. He's the really ca- good. Yeah. The casual watchers <laughs> probably don't understand that he is, uh, he's one of those guys. that's a lot bigger than you think he is. Like you yeah. watch him kind of on the field and you're like, yeah, he looks pretty athletic. He's one of those like beefed up wide receiver types. Right. <laughs> then you stand next to him and you're like, nope, this guy can block. He's super solid. Yeah. He also happens to be athletic, but he's bigger than you think he is. He carries the weight really well. I'm going to throw a couple of rookie sleeper values in there as well. We've done that for the last couple episodes. Terrace Marshall, we talked about him. Uh, this is a guy that can get down the sideline, 
pick up big catches, great contested catch rate that you highlighted, and he can catch touchdowns. If you miss him, he is big, big enough, fast enough, strong enough that he can turn any kind of blown coverage. And with that many options, he's going to see single coverage. As a rookie, um, more established veterans around him, they're going to have to single somebody, and they're probably going to single him until he starts to make them pay. I doubt very much that any defensive coordinator is going to look at the array of offensive weapons on Carolina and go, uh, double Marshall, right? Until he scores a few. Then they might start doing it, especially in the red zone. But Terrace Marshall would be on the top of that list. And Chuba Hubbard is really almost kind of that handcuff. He's, I think, with Mike Davis moving on, the number two back in Carolina pretty quickly. Um, he's going to have to earn that. He's going to have to pass protect. But we saw what happens when CMC gets hurt, right? The number two is going to get a pretty solid workload in Carolina. And if he's in that number two slot, he could get you a lot of points. Um, not that we're hoping for CMC to disappear anytime soon. That team's way more fun with him on the field. We hope he stays healthy the whole time. But if he doesn't, or even if they need to give him a break to try and keep him healthy, and Chuba Hubbard ascends to that number two role, which he certainly has the talent to do, he could get you a lot of points. So he's another decent rookie sleeper. And the number one thing is if you draft Christian McCaffrey, if you have the first overall pick, which is where he's most likely going to go, Chuba's the guy you take in round 17, somewhere around there, where it's like, if Christian goes down, I won't be completely destroyed. Uh, at least my season won't be completely destroyed because I got the guy who's going to be getting carries behind him. So it's he's a, uh, what's the word, under the radar, but still quality handcuff option, in my opinion. Uh, and then last but not least this episode, we have, uh, you know, best and worst teams, you know, suggested by a listener. You know, we talk about who we think is the best team, who we think is the worst team. Maybe worst isn't the yeah. applicable <laughs> term here. I was going to say, that's an odd label for this division, but it is the way it was was posed by one of our listeners who said, hey, can you just tell us who you think the sort of top and bottom of each division are? Um, best, I, I think you could probably figure this one out, dear listeners. Yeah. If, you, if you paid yeah. attention, we're both really bullish on Tampa. Tampa is, uh, they're in the leaders, they're in the driver's seat right now, and somebody's going to need to push them out of it. Something, something bad is going to have to happen for them not to be favored in this division. And then worst, yeah, we got to come up with a different label, but uh, probably most work to do or, or just prove it for me is Atlanta. Arthur Smith, new head coach. Everything's got a mesh. They have talent. We talked about it. The cupboard is far from bare, um, but are they going to be that team that's trailing in every second half they go into and are going to have to be on sort of prove it status from early on? And if they are, I'm really sorry, Atlanta fans. I know you have some PTSD about second halves. Um, it's, you know, trust in Arthur Smith, but he's got to show that he can do it because, again, other well-established teams in this division, uh, whether it's tenure like the Saints or recent results like the Bucks, or aspiring young talent like Carolina. Like Atlanta's not worst. It's just they're kind of got the most to prove with a new head coaching staff and trying to make everything mesh. Yeah, and, and again, this is one of those divisions where I think, I said at the top of the show, everybody not named Tampa. I mean, Tampa, I think, is going to win the division, but everybody else could very easily get a wild card. Like it's, there is a path for all of these teams. Like you got a former MVP quarterback with a great, you know, offensive mind, Arthur Smith and still plenty of skill position talent, Julio or no Julio. You got some defensive pieces. You got, 
you know, the the offensive wizardry of Sean Payton with an elite offensive line, elite running back, elite receiver, really nasty defense. Uh, and then you got Carolina, who's in terms of, you know, young talents, one of the most excited, exciting young teams in the league. And if Darnold works out like we think he can work out, again, it's there, there's no bad teams here. You know, we're, the next division we talk about is the AFC South. Trust me. There's at least one really, really fucking bad team there. And we'll talk plenty about them next week. Next week. But there's no bad teams in the, in the NFC South. At least none that I can anticipate. Like, I didn't think the Falcons were only going to win four games last year either. But there were some really weird circumstances that also led to that record. So I, I, I think that they were a much better team than their record was. Like, just when you look at them on paper, everybody's at least average here. And uh, that's, that's a rare thing to say for a division. So overall, NFC South, um, I think it's going to be a really, really fun division to watch this coming year. I think there's uh, every single division game I think is going to be must-see TV at minimum, especially uh, Saints-Falcons just because of the added extra element of hatred there. It's one of the best rivalries in the entire league. I love watching Saints-Falcons games every single year. Uh, what say you overall closing thoughts on the division before we get out of here? It's a super fun division. A lot of it, as you've heard us say, comes down to quarterback play, whether it's the established quarterbacks, Tom Brady and Matt Ryan, or the newer quarterbacks, whoever's going to end up in the starter's chair for the Saints, or Sam Darnold, who's not a new quarterback, but he's new to Carolina, and he's he's in the best situation of his young career. How's that going to work out? We don't know. It could be tremendous. It could be a complete shit show. So it's going to be fascinating <laughs> to watch. Either way, um, and, you know, we expect a certain level from Tom Brady. Uh, we expect a certain level of play from, from Matt Ryan. The others are unexpected, but like you said, not bad. Are they all going to be good? No, numbers say they won't. Somebody's going to fall off here and, and have a, a season that doesn't measure up to their potential or talent. Uh, but the the division games, especially, as you mentioned, can be pretty pretty heated everybody's going to be gunning for the super bowl champion every week that makes for some intense games nobody's going to try and make it easy on them and uh you know overall in terms of like division strength it's a strong division it's going to be really fun to watch and it's really about you know can the established quarterbacks keep that level of quarterback play high and can the newcomers sort of ascend to a level that really challenges those guys, which, you know, as far as Brady goes is the gold standard right now. So, um, fascinating storylines, lots of young talent, um, lots of reasons to watch every week. Well, EJ, I am, uh, all out of whiskey, which means it's time for us to get out of here. So thank you to everybody for, for listening. Thank you for watching on YouTube. Uh, our YouTube growth has been absolutely amazing lately. So again, uh, couldn't be more thankful for all you guys supporting us on that platform as well. And not just listening on podcast platforms. Uh, we will be back next week talking about the AFC South, uh, and, uh, and how much I absolutely despise the Texans these days because they're just such a fucking mess and I can't believe how terribly run they are. And oh my God, EJ, I have a lot to say. So we'll be back next week to talk about that. <laughs> mess uh of a franchise can't wait 
Yeah. And oh, then, it's going to uh, be must-see uh, TV, folks. It's, yeah. It, yeah. Now, we'll, we'll hit on a few other things, like, oh, by the way, Trevor Lawrence in Jacksonville, and, you know, the Colts getting Carson Wentz, and and and, uh, and the Titans getting the other side of the Julio Jones trade. So, a lot to go over with the AFC South. We'll be back next week to break it all down. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>